0: you know, I suppose I should arrange my desk before the microphone goes live so you don't hear all the shuffling of paper and all the, the weird stuff going on here. Uh, what is today? 620, 6.22. I've got my notes here. The 22 or 23? No, 22. Okay, there we go. Tomorrow's 23. Yeah, today's going to be a, a lot different than yesterday. And so yesterday was just a hoot. <laughs> we had all these folks. I mean, it, was, it was the way I like radio. Multiple guests, crazy stuff going on, total improvs, surprises, and, I mean, everything you can think of um, that, um, that makes radio fun happened yesterday. And so I hope you catch the podcast. If you didn't catch the show, catch the podcast because it was great. So Bill Sacki is back after uh, a multi-month absence. And so he was, he was hysterical. We're talking about Ron DeSantis uh, and his, the self-inflicted demise of Ron DeSantis. Idiot told him not to run. I didn't think it was that stupid. Apparently he is that stupid. So, you know, well, there's no end to what flattery and money will make a person do. Apparently, um, Wendy Arthur brought a couple of guests on, um, so we had Scott and Bonnie, um, who like a brother and sister who just met after years and years of being separated after, uh, you know, some pretty horrendous things happened to them, but uh, they do comedy, they do commentary. And so we had them on. And so they stayed the next hour. <laughs> I was planning to do other stuff, but actually what I was planning to do yesterday, I'm going to do today. So Bonnie and, and Scott, uh, stuck around for a while. Not Clyde, not Bonnie. I should say Scott and Bonnie. <laughs> Otherwise, people won't make that uh, association. And then in the third hour, we had I had scheduled Laura Bartlett, and she brings another guest, Greta Crawford. And so I'm surprised again. <laughs> so I, yesterday was full of surprises. <laughs> so I had all these surprise guests come on, but that's okay. And so Laura and uh, Greta stayed an extra 45 minutes, and they talked about hospital contracts and all the things that can save your life when you get to these, uh, you know, uh, just places of I guess we should call them death and profit. You know, they they make more money off killing people than they do off uh, actually saving people. And that changed. See, when I went to the hospital for my heart surgery, there was still back in the days when they were saving people to make money. Now and now they're killing people to make money. And so all the the protocols have changed. Same people too. This is this is the crazy part about it. You got the same people in the hospitals. Most of them that were there, you know, just a couple of years ago, but yet everything's changed. So the when I was there in 2017. You know, had open heart surgery. They actually, uh, when uh, the blood centers made my chest fill with fluid, they actually took it out rather than put me on a ventilator. Gee, what a surprise. And what happened? Well, my lungs cleared up and I was fine. Okay. So that was the right thing to do. That was the appropriate treatment. Um, the inappropriate treatment for COVID, of course, is remdesivir and ventilators, which were designed to kill people. And so they could dish out that $100,000 and, you know, scare the hell out of people so they take the jab, which makes things worse and gives you COVID, et cetera. We all know the story, right? Um, so we talked about that in the third hour. And it was just, it was quite interesting, but she, uh, Laura and, and Greta have a contract where you can uh, basically get something notarized and signed into your hospital saying, you can't give me anything that I don't authorize. Because that's the problem. They're just basically doing stuff to be able to get them all drugged up, restraining them, you know, putting in, uh, restra- literally restraining, strapping them down, uh, not letting their family come in and, uh, you know, putting them on the remdesivir ventilator path to uh, death. And so that's what, you know, and we talked a lot about that yesterday. We've talked a lot about that many days. I had uh, Rebecca Charles on. We've had Scott Shara on, both of whom lost their daughters to hospital protocols. Uh, So, in other words, the hospitals are following the protocols and killing people, and they're not stopping the protocols. You know, in fact, it's more important for them to follow the protocol and keep the job uh, and kill people than it is to actually save people, change the protocols to the ones that work. Or just get out of the profession. And how do you work at a profession where your job is, you know, your, your alleged job is to save people and you end up uh, killing them? And, uh, well, I've got to keep my job. You know, it's, it's my job. And I, you know, I got, you know, bills and mortgages and family to feed and all that stuff. So, so, so you know, if, if, when you go from saving people to killing people I and mean, you still keep the same job, there's something inherently wrong. <laughs> You've got people with no conscience. Anyway, so that was yesterday. Today, oh, and Marcos got just checked in from the Netherlands. I think Marco was off yesterday doing who knows what. Well, it's, 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 maybe he'll tell me, maybe he won't, we'll find out. But I'm hoping more folks will join us on live chat. Live chat's been, been well, it was lively when um, uh, Warren from uh, uh, Black Lives Matter and uh, his show Wake Up New Orleans was here. It got really exciting. Everybody was like screaming and yelling. And Warren was calling me a, a, a white supremacist and I was calling him a black supremacist. So we basically came out evenly. Um, but live chat works. Also, we have the, uh, the Skype line too. So anybody can call us from anywhere in the world on Skype. You just have to call ahead like the day before or two, and I'll catch it and okay your account, and then you can call in. So that's how that works. And you call directly to the show on Skype, and it gets uh, put directly on board, and uh, we go from there and probably screen it. I've got some interesting things happening in the works, some major guests uh, possibly coming on the show or me being on their show. And so that's, uh, I can't give you details yet, but uh, suffice it to say, the the real action in action radio is is not on the show, it's actually off the show. (laughs) So most of the cool stuff happens uh, off the air, and then I can bring it to you on the air. And so that works out really, really nicely. So I've got tons of articles. I've got lots of things to talk about, but hopefully we'll get maybe a couple of callers checking in, and then we can find stuff where Marco can ask me a ton of questions on live chat. Uh, I share it in the show today just because I did almost four hours yesterday, and I don't have any guests. Uh, CJ can't make it today, so we don't have a wellness report. Uh, I do have in the second hour a, um, a broadcast from W E B Y from my classic days, I did the video two weeks at this point. So it's March 13th. You know, I started March 1st, right? So it's just under two weeks uh, of radio when I interviewed uh, Alex uh, Stewart, who is the uh, who was then the uh, uh, the director of uh, con- Students for Concealed Carry uh, in Florida. It's a nationwide group, so I'm going to get back in touch with them. I'll give them the interview mm-hmm. that, I, um, that I'm going to play today and see if they'll come back on. Problem with uh, concealed carry for Florida for students on, on campus is they raise the age for owning a handgun from 18 to 21, which they can't do, of course. But That's unconstitutional. Uh, adults are defined as 18 now. You know, you vote, you can uh, do all kinds of things, you know. And so so the age, even though they don't need you drink till 21, the age of both, the the, the voting and the, the majority age, when you can sign contracts, you know, get married and do whatever you want, you know, start a business, all that stuff is 18. And so, you know, go to war, <laughs> all those different things that uh, people do. And so you're not a minor anymore at 18, but uh, so if you're not, if you're an adult, then you should, uh, then by law, by constitution, you get to own and carry firearms. That's, that's part of what being an adult means. And yet Florida took that away unconstitutionally. So I'm not sure that's what, you know, I checked the Florida carry um, students for concealed carry in Florida and there wasn't a whole lot on their page um, after 220 or 2020, excuse me. Well, cause that's when the law changed. So when students can't carry, there's no point in having a, an organization for students to be able to carry. So that, that's probably one of the first things we need to change, is to get that, uh, get the Constitution changed back where it's supposed to be, saying that uh, you know, the right of the people to keep and bear arms you know, can't be touched. And just leave it at that. Don't say except, <laughs> that's the part of the Florida Constitution. It says the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. except, And then they have all these exceptions which are infringements, you know, by definition. So none, nothing after the, nothing including the word and after the word except is constitutional. So you just need to delete all that stuff. All right. So a couple of hearings yesterday. And I watched them the videotape because I generally edit out the Democrats because they've me. And quite frankly, I don't have the time. And I, and I know their arguments anyway. I know what they're going to say. So there's, there's not much point in me listening to them. So let's start, Derma Riley. Let's start with Riley Gaines. So Riley Gaines is with a, uh, uh, you know, a, a trans-thinking person. i got to think of a new word. Or trans-diluted or trans-something. You know, because there's no such thing as trans. Well, let's say, um, hmm, cosmetically al- cosmetically gender-altered. <laughs> Do you like that one? Or elective gender-altered. No, I think cosmetically gender-altered is probably... A, I'm going to write that down. I kind of like that definition. It's interesting. Cosmetically gender-altered. Cosmetically... <laughs> Because they're, they're not changing their sex. And that was one of the problems with the hearings. So we had a person that, that called themselves trans, who was a dude, who looked like a chick. And the whole point of, of, of why I make that distinction, cosmetically gender altered. I like that. Makes It makes sense to me. Altered. Let's see if I can write it so I can read it. problem is I write so fast when I'm doing the show that um, sometimes my own writing, I can't yeah, so that's what I'm thinking. So, um, so you've got this young dude who now looks like a chick um, pretending to be a chick, which is fine. You know, I have no problem with that. The problem with, with the whole trans thing is, is not the fact that consenting adults want to alter their bodies. People do that all the time. They gain weight. They lose weight. They get piercings. They get tattoos. They get cosmetic surgery. They get boob jobs, nose jobs. People alter their body all the time. I have no problem with that. Sex altering. Maybe we should call it sex altering. Sex altering surgery, altering. I'm going get all these different words down because you've got to find the right words. Find uh, the right words is half have the to, have to battle. Sex altering elective surgery. <laughs> sex altering surgery. There we go. So in other words, people get sex sex altering surgery, but they're still, they're still who they were. So it kind of puts people in this sort of limbo. It's weird. And this is why I think the whole thing is, is a hoax on these poor unsuspecting people that think they'll somehow be happier uh, if they change their body from you know male, um, but remove the the part that made them male, and uh, or or try to fake you know being female, or females who try to you know be males, chromosomally you're still the same. You're either born male or born female, and that's it. That, that, that's that's the way the world works. Okay. Despite everybody's efforts to change that, uh, and that was part of the fun of the hearing yesterday. We had some ridiculous people. Um, the one uh, um, black woman that could not say what a woman was, could not say that men are generally stronger, um, even though it's probably obvious to anybody with a brain that men are, you know, generally stronger. Always. There's, no, there's no not always for anything. You know, the, um, and then you had Riley Gaines, who was talking about um, her husband, who's like ranked, I don't know, a thousandth, you know, in college, men can beat her every time. And she's ranked number one in the country, you know, for college women. Well, I think she's out of college now, but for, for women swimmers, you know, and um, there is a difference. It's kind of interesting that she tied uh, Will Thomas, you know, when Will was competing against women uh, on the swim team. And he got the award because we had to give it to him for optics, you know. And so there's this whole farce. So the Democrats come at this. That what they were saying was that um, the reason that we have to have trans people in sports is because there's violence against LGBTQ people. In other words, they're arguing something totally unrelated to try and prove that something that, uh, something that can't be or, or, you know, ethically or is, you know, violently, vehemently opposed by pretty much most of the country uh, is is good. So in other words, if we have people who call themselves trans who are still their original sex uh, competing against people of the opposite sex, that's going to do something about, you know, uh, uh, alleged attacks on LGBTQ folks. Well, of course, what they never talked about is the attacks by LGBTQ folks, especially the trans folks that scream trans rights or human rights and then attack Riley Gaines and locked her up for three hours and kidnapped her and demanded a ransom to release her, okay? Uh, the trans person, trans-identified, you know, person who murdered uh, the kids and the teachers in, in Nashville, Tennessee. That, that story seems to have disappeared. So the idea that you have to have Will Thomas, a man, you know, who has been surgically, chemically altered, um, swimming w- against women, you know, and that somehow is going to protect lesbians, gays, bisexuals, you know, trans-identified uh, folks, you know, from violent crimes uh, and not talk about the crimes that they are, in fact, are committing is 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 disconnected. It's a false equivalency. It's like my favorite example, you know, when I say that, uh, you know, the people say, well, if two things are, are true, then the third thing must be true. Really? So if uh, if a butterfly lands on a mailbox and two cars immediately crash in front of you, does that mean butterflies cause car accidents? Well, no, because they're not related. You know, if you put a man on a women's swim team, is that going to stop, you know, crime? No, because they have nothing to do with each other. This <laughs> is really fascinating. Anyway, so uh, Riley was the strongest one. Um, I still think she's going to run for office. I predicted it about six months ago when I saw her on. I think it was either probably Eric Bowling. And I think she was on with Tucker Carlson when he still had his job um, at Fox. And I said, that woman's going to run for office. I still predict it. Now she's testifying before Congress. And she's testifying very well before Congress. So it's only a matter of time before she, uh, I think, runs for office. I think she'll be on the ballot somewhere, uh, probably in Tennessee in 2024. Don't be surprised. State rep, state legislator, uh, member of Congress. I don't think she will run for senator right away. But to a member of Congress, absolutely. And so that would be very interesting. But she said quite, quite plainly, she said, you can't change your chromosomes. And chromosomes determine which swim team you're on. You know, if you have two X chromosomes, you swim on the women's swim team. If you have an X and a Y chromosome, you swim on the men's swim team. You know, and, and any surgery or drug therapy you've done does not change your chromosomes and therefore does not change your biology or your advantage um, in any particular sport. Now, it would be interesting to see if, uh, you know, you notice that the, 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 the men that are, are identifying as women Uh, are not competing in gymnastics. You don't see them on the uneven parallel bars because women's bodies are more flexible and they can do it. Guys don't even do that event. okay? And for the same reason you don't see women competing on the rings because they don't have the physical upper body strength to compete on the rings. So let's see a woman who's who's, uh, trans-identified as a guy uh, do the rings. It's not going to happen. So it's such a farce, this whole thing. Anyway, so Riley pointed it out. But these other folks, there was like a doctor who kept talking about uh, gender-affirming. Well, if you're trying to change a your gender, you're not affirming, you're reversing. You're making it its opposite. So that's not affirming. So the whole thing, so that's a, that's a contradiction right there, too. And then they had the, the young trans-identified, you know, uh, man who's, you know, converting, trying to be a woman. And uh, how brave and wonderful she is. So the Democrats were all using stupid arguments, like they usually do, about things that weren't relevant and refused to deal with the fact that you've got men on women's swim teams. Now, the Republicans actually dealt with that. So, so the Republicans would talk to Riley Gaines, uh, and the Democrats would talk to the liberals. <laughs> it was a fascinating hearing. So much for that one. The second hearing that took place yesterday, and this one was quite interesting, also, um, was the John Durham hearing. Now, John Durham is a protege of Bill Barr, who is one of the worst Attorney Generals ever, who pretended to, uh, you know, support Trump, but he's actually a Bush globalist, uh, and he was one of the inside plans to sabotage Trump. He was the one that said that refused to investigate you know, all of the election fraud that caused the election to be stolen in 2020, saying that, first of all, he said that there, there wasn't election fraud, which of course is totally absurd. Everybody knows there was, especially the Democrats because they caused it. So Democrats know better than anybody about all the election fraud and the stolen election because they spent years engineering it. <laughs> so of course they know. Um, and Bill Barr, and then he said there wasn't enough election fraud. To change the result, this is his 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 big line, right? There wasn't enough election fraud to change the result, so so in other words, because of that, he wasn't going to investigate it. Well, that's like saying there wasn't enough money stolen from the bank to put him out of business, so it doesn't change the ability of the bank to carry on business. So so that robbery doesn't count. (laughs) There wasn't a robbery. Really? Tell that to the to the bank and the customers. All right. So anyway, it's the same logic. You know, there wasn't uh, enough illegal drugs in the system to kill him. Therefore, we're not going to prosecute them for using illegal drugs or selling illegal drugs, huh? That's the standard. So, if your standard is there isn't enough to change the result, there wasn't enough money stolen from the 7-Eleven to to put them out of business. Therefore, it wasn't it wasn't a robbery or wasn't shoplifting. You know, that's just absurd. (laughs) But that's that's Bill Barr's standard of justice. He was the Attorney General, right? So his protege and part of the cover-up was John Durham. So John Durham was the one who was sent to investigate the Russia collusion hoax, the, the made-up um, campaign by Hillary Clinton that Donald Trump was a Russian agent, which, of course, she is. This is all projection. She is a Russian agent who gave away 20% of our uranium to Putin. Now, strangely, that didn't come up in the hearing yesterday. At least I didn't hear it. Should have. That would have been my first question. So where's, so, uh, so where's Hillary Clinton's 20% of our uranium? Russia has it. Well, there's no more Russian agent than someone that gives away 20% of our uranium so Russia can have uh, free energy. That's a Russian agent. You know, Trump? No, of course not. Democrats don't see it that way. So the, they hate Trump. So anything they can use against Trump. So they're still talking like the – I mean, the Durham report proved that this, this whole Russia hoax thing was a complete and total hoax. But the Democrats are carrying on as if it didn't happen. They say, well, Trump's guilty of this and he's guilty of he's a Russian agent. And all and They're just basically reciting things that have already been proven wrong, but they don't care because it's the talking point. It's the emotion that matters. And one guy said, well, you can't deal with Trump. He's 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 damaged goods. And um, yeah, like 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 Brandon, something special. <laughs> Come on, give me a break. Brandon's not even a legal president. But they don't see that either because it's all about power. And this is stuff we all know. But the fascinating thing about the Durham report and what we said, what we said here at the time back on action radio because Durham was charged with investigating the Russia hoax back in 2019. Of course, the Russia hoax happened before the 2016 campaign and was carried on for two years later. And, and so Barr, you know, Bob Barr, Bill Barr, excuse me, reluctantly appointed someone who he knew would not investigate and would take forever to do. And we said that at the time. We said in 2019, when Durham was charged with investigating the Russia hoax, we said if he doesn't come up with his results before the 2020 election, there's no point. Then we know he's part of the cover-up. Well, guess what happened? He didn't come out with the stuff you know, uh, before the 2020 election. He didn't come out with his report anytime in 2020 or 2021 or 2022. Not until sometime early 2023, three years after the report would have done any good, does he come out with it. And he basically said stuff we already knew. So that's not a report. That's cover-up. He's part of the cover-up. I knew he was going to be part of the cover-up. Everybody knew. We all talked about that back in 2019. So you give it to Durham? Durham's deep state. He's a protege of Bill Barr. He's not going to do anything. He's not going to uh, throw anybody in jail. He's not going to investigate it. He didn't, you know, Matt Gaetz, you know, my congressman, had him on the grill. And he said, well, how come he didn't investigate this person? How come he didn't investigate them? Well, that was the scope of our investigation. No, it's not. <laughs> you know, Matt Gates says, look, it's right here in black and white. This is what you're charged to do. You're charged to find this person and ask him these questions. That was what the whole thing was about. That's the whole Russia hoax. This is the guy that engineered the Russia hoax. How can you not ask him the questions? Well, we couldn't find him. You couldn't find him? What do you mean you couldn't find him? Well, he's um, somewhere in Europe. Well, so what? Well, we found his lawyer. Oh, great. <laughs> you know, why didn't you ask his lawyer where he was? And John Durham says, well, uh, uh, we don't know if we can. We don't have the constitutional authority. And, uh, you know, the lawyer didn't tell us where he was. I'm thinking, of course, the lawyer didn't tell you where he was. The lawyer's protecting his client. Surprised Matt Gates didn't say that. When he comes on the show, I'll ask him. So th- this goes back and forth. So Gates concludes, and he's, he is the best. Uh, this, like He had two five-minute things. you got to listen to both of them because they're both brilliant. But what he said was that, uh, Durham, you're part of the cover-up. You're an op. You are a cover-up op. You are a part of this whole thing. You know that the, the Trump you know transition team was spied upon. You know about the meeting on um, January uh, 5th, 2017, you know, right before January 6th, before the electors were counted, you know that uh, James Comey, Barack Obama, Susan Rice, um, Joe Biden, and James Comey, the, the FBI disgraced head, were all there in a meeting talking about spying on Trump. And we know that because Susan Rice wrote an email saying that she was there spying on Trump. So we all know this. But so he never investigated it. Why? Because he's part of the cover-up. <laughs> You know, And once you realize that he's part of the cover-up, it's easy. All right? You can just tell. And so is anybody going to investigate this? Well, we'll find out. But, the, but there's another problem, too. You know, Kevin McCarthy, Kevin McDeep State. Kevin McDeep State says, there's a two-tier standard of justice. Well, we all know that, but he's not doing anything. So has he filed any bills? Has he taken any action? Has he demanded that Brandon show up before the committee? How about uh, let's get Obama in there before the committee? Says, what are you spying on Trump? We know he's spying on Trump. So let's let's find out why. And of course, you know Obama's not going to admit it. Susan Rice isn't going to admit it because they think they're above the law, and quite frankly, right now they are. So they don't care. They're about destroying this country and making it in their Marxist Muslim image. And that's that's Obama. That's that's why he was you know hired by the the world government folks. It's pretty straightforward. And just take a look at his actions, especially when he talks about his Muslim heritage. That was funny. So that's our tale of two hearings. Um, Covered campus. i uh, will cover a bunch of stuff. All right, let's um, let's get to an article here, and then I'll take a break. Do, 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 do. I have so many. This is gonna be fun. So uh, let's see if I get the most scandalous stuff up first here. Okay, now let's let go. I've got, I've got I'm learning how to you know coordinate my articles on on you know like put five articles on one window so my show doesn't shut down. Let's start with my very first article here, how Ron DeSantis helped conceal the truth about Jeffrey Epstein's sex crimes in Florida the same year Epstein allegedly, quote, killed himself. That's our first scandal. This is from Loomer Unleashed. This is from loomer who I'd love to get on the show. June 20th. So, what, two days ago? She says the aspiring GOP presidential candidate, who we all pretty much discredited yesterday, um, indulged the request of the Democrat. Palm Beach Sheriff, who oversaw the work-release program that convicted sexual predator Jeffrey Epstein, uh, participated in. So there we go. Let's see if I can uh, scroll down a little bit. Nice picture of Epstein, nice picture of Ron Sanders, and a badge in the middle, the sheriff's badge. And then she she says, this is Laura Loomer, the life-death of world-renowned sexual predator and pedophile Jeffrey Epstein is commonplace and riddled with theories and unanswered questions. It shocked the world when it was announced that Jeffrey Epstein had been found dead in his New York jail cell, which was reported as suicide. It's the Clintons' favorite method of death, right? Suicide. More people died of suicide around the Clintons, um, strangely, <laughs> than anybody knows about. Um, and for all of us journalists, let's make our disclaimer once again. I'm fine. I'm happy if anything happens to me. And they say suicide, for depression anything like that ain't happening. I'm ecstatic about life. I'm having so much fun. I can't stand it. Anyway. Disclaimer once again issued. All right. So it says suicide on August 10th, 2019, just 35 days after he was arrested. Pretty amazing. Now, why would a guy that can afford the best lawyers in the world kill himself? The answer is he wouldn't. Why would a guy that has all the power in the world uh, to do pretty much what he wants? He has his own island. He's bought and paid politicians. He's friends with Bill Clinton. You know, he's friends with Prince Andrew. They come to his pedophile island. You know, the rich and powerful, you know, do what they do with underage girls because they're sick the sick pervert pedophiles, uh, why would he kill himself in a jail cell before he's even had trial? And the answer is he wouldn't, because he can afford the best lawyers in the world. You know, and he's an arrogant SOB. (laughs) So so this is why, you know, so even if you don't know the evidence, you don't know the story, just it's just on a rational basis. You know, use what we use here. The the um the, the logic and reason filter. The logic and reason filter tells me that he would not kill himself because at least until now if he was found guilty and faced you know 50 years in prison, yeah maybe, that's possibly understandable if he was massively depressed and had access to a whole bunch of drugs or things like that. But the idea that he self-strangled him, you know, he self-strangled before the before the even a, a hearing or an indictment or or I mean or, or an arraignment or anything he was in a holding cell waiting for his. Uh, I guess, no, I guess it was a trial. It's probably an arraignment. You know, before he do anything, he had anything happen in the trial, he's gonna kill himself. No, rich people don't do that. Because they can afford good lawyers. This is why, if you can afford a good lawyer, you don't kill yourself. I mean, that's, that's pretty obvious. Then it says, at the time of his highly suspicious death, uh, Epstein was awaiting trial on sex trafficking charges after he was accused of sexually trafficking dozens of underage girls and engaging in sexual acts with them. So what is this perverted pedophilia fascination that rich dudes have for young girls? I, it's, it's truly sick, but it, it just seems to me the pattern that it's the richest folks to go for the youngest girls. What is wrong with them? Do they think because they're all powerful, they can do anything they want? Apparently they do. they had an island where they were doing anything they wanted. Where are the parents? <laughs> you know, these poor girls. Anyway, so a lot of them are growing up to be uh, women, adult women, and they're going to start writing books, and hopefully they'll, they'll get something back for the abuse they took. All right, next paragraph is, according to the unsealed federal indictment, an it's made by the United States Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York, the same one as prosecuting Trump for all kinds of bogus charges. My line. (laughs) prosecutor said, back to the article, in or about 2002, which is right after 9-11, up to and including at least or about 2005, quote, Epstein sexually exploited and abused dozens of underage girls by enticing them to engage in sex acts with him in exchange for money. Epstein allegedly worked with several employees and associates to ensure that he had a steady supply of minor victims to abuse and paid several of those victims themselves to recruit other other underage girls to engage in similar acts for money. Hmm, interesting. But this guy is truly uh, truly a debaucherous and decadent. Anyway, he says he committed these offenses in locations including New York and Palm Beach, Florida. This is the indictment described how Epstein would lure women to his gated compound in Palm Beach where he would pay young girls, many of whom were underage, well, that's the definition of young, hundreds of dollars to, I'm not going to go into the details Uh, prior to being arrested and jailed in New York, Epstein, who made his fortune as a financier, did anybody ever look into that? How did he make his money? You know, was was he given uh, because of his uh, proclivities, shall we say, or his illegal activities, or his access to young girls that he provided to the rich and powerful? Um, Was it, you know, did he get sweetheart deals for finances? Did he get insider trading? I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me. You know, that that's how that's how the Clintons make their money <laughs> insider trading and the, and the the foundation where they get donations which they keep. Anyway, says prior to being arrested and jailed in New York, I've seen that had previously been investigated in Florida more than ten years earlier in connection with the sexual abuse of underage girls. Yeah, there was some uh DA, I've forgotten the story. But somebody actually investigated him and they dismissed all the charges despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Gee, how'd that happen? This is what I say, if you know, this guy is so arrogant, he gets arrested the first time ten years, you know, previously walks out of that charge. Why did, you know, I don't think for a second he thought he wouldn't walk out of that charge too. So why would he kill him? And the answer is he wouldn't. Anyway, article says, while there's enough salacious details surrounding the uh, Epstein scandal to fill an encyclopedia, the Florida-based investigation into Epstein first began in 2005 by police in Palm Beach, Florida, after the family of a 14-year-old girl reported that she was sexually molested inside Epstein's Palm Beach mansion. Let the part where, let's see if we can get the part where it brings in uh, DeSantis. It's a rather long article. De-de-de-de. DeSantis, DeSantis, DeSantis. I don't see him yet. Uh-uh-uh. I'm going to keep going here for a minute. This is from long articles, because i read long articles myself, too. I'm not, I'm not much better. Here we go. The biggest controversy surrounding Florida's handling of Justice just Free Epstein's cushy plea deal was the decision by Palm Beach County Sheriff Rick Bradshaw, who was a Democrat, to allow Epstein to serve out his prison sentence in a private, low-security wing of the Palm Beach County Jail, where he participated in a work-release program under Sheriff Bradshaw. At the time, Epstein was well-known and high-profile uh, Democrat donor who had close associations with President Bill Clinton. Under the work-release program, Epstein was allowed to leave the jail for 12 hours each day, six days a week. Wow. When Epstein wanted to leave the jail, he was picked up by his private driver and his security guard, driven to his office where he conducted work meetings, and met with visitors. Huh, Krushy J- Java. Some jail. Is, it, is that what jail looks like? Hmm. Uh, so I'm going to skip down here. Okay, more details, more details, more details. Well, I'm looking for the word DeSantis. Where's DeSantis figure into this? Doesn't say. How Ron DeSantis helped conceal the truth about Gypsy. Gonna say, if you're not going to talk about DeSantis, why am I reading this article? One might wonder that. Gee, Greg, don't you read all your articles ahead of time? No, not completely. Quite frankly, I don't have time. Uh, let's see if I can find, of course, now I'm skipping down. I should take a break right now. Let's see if I can find anything relevant in this particular piece on uh, what the, see, this is something I noticed too, is that people will title something salaciously, you know, Ron uh, DeSantis was involved in Epstein, and then not talk about it hardly at all. It's like one line somewhere in, in, the, in the piece. All right, 7.30. It's a good time to take a break anyway. Uh, let me play a couple things for you. I'll see if I can find what I'm looking for in this article, and be right back to you. Don't be a rope pilot who just follows procedures. Be a thinking pilot who makes great decisions, who understands all the reasons why we do what we do. You can incorporate these principles into your own flight training at any time. The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction is featured on the Action Radio with Greg Panklos Facebook page and is available from Amazon.com. Well, that sounds good. The phone number is 850-623-6651. That's 850-623-6651. Call, ask questions, and get the information you need. Florida Stores Automotive is a full-service automotive shop for both domestic and imports, modern and classic. It is a family-owned business here in our Milton community. Open weekdays from 7.30 to 5 p.m., Florida Stars Automotive is a convenient place to keep your car maintained and on the road. Ask them about Firestone Tires and the rotation and maintenance plan. Florida Stars Automotive. I go there. You should, too. Action Radio It took a while, but, uh, yeah. So back to our article here, uh, Laura Loomer, who says, I reached out to Senator Book's office. Senator Book is one of the uh, um, folks. I was talking about the work release program and things like that for Epstein. Anyway, so that's uh, – I'm just sort of jumping into a here, but you'll, you'll catch up. Anyway, it says, and they confirmed the logis- legitimacy of this letter she sent. Uh, this is the Laura Loomer, I guess, to Governor DeSantis in 2019. After she sent her letter, Senator Book said she received death threats and over a dozen phone calls from supporters of Palm Beach Sheriff Branshaw ordering her to cease and desist her efforts to have Governor DeSantis investigate the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office relationship with Jeffrey Epstein during his work release program. So this is kind of key. So maybe I should just back up a little bit here. So here's a letter from Senator Lauren Book. There we go. So let me back up just a bit here. Oh, Okay, so here we go. So, all right. So, <laughs> I guess you got all the details. I so keep going back. So I lose more details here. Anyway, so Jeffrey Epstein arrested July 6, 2019. 13 days later, July 19th, Sheriff Rick Bradshaw of the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office ordered an internal investigation uh, into handling of Jeffrey Epstein work release relationship, which is overseen by Bradshaw. Uh, 10 years prior. Well, there we go. Audley Bradshaw never once called for an investigation into the unethical work release program between 2008 and 2019, which suggested the investigation was only prompted out of Bradshaw's fear of what would be uncovered about his own unethical and possibly illegal actions as the overseer of the work release program. So so this bogus work release program. Epstein's out 12 hours a day. <laughs> you know, It's not really what we would call incarceration. Anyway, so the senator, Lauren State, so Florida State Senator Lauren Book, who's a Democrat representative from Broward County, uh, which neighbors Palm Beach County sent a letter to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on July 23rd, 2019, and she said, which she addressed the alarming fact that Epstein was able to sexually abuse young girls while under Sheriff Bradshaw's work release program. See, this is the key to it. Okay, this is, this is where it gets interesting, all right? So uh, Epstein's out, you know, like I say, uh, assaulting girls, sexually abusing girls under a sheriff's work release program. And so Senator Lauren Book says, uh, this is uh, yet another breakdown of the system's dealing with this pedophile abuser. She says, we are calling for accountability on all fronts. And to that end, I am formally requesting for you to direct the Florida Department of Law Enforcement to investigate this matter. There's the Florida Senate letter. So you can see this. I posted it on Facebook. You can look up Laura Loomer. Loomer unleashed on uh, Substack. So you'll find this kind of stuff. Anyway, she says, I reached out to Senator Book's office. That'll be Laura they confirm the legitimacy of the letter, which they put here in the article, and away you go. All right, so fast forward down a little bit. Book, Senator Book was warned that calling for an independent investigation into Sheriff Bradshaw would be politically disadvantageous to her career, since Bradshaw is close to John Kazanjian, the president of the politically influential Florida Police Benevolent Association. Well, why is he? Why is he interested in this? Right. According to a report, Kazanjan, who is also president of the Palm Beach uh, PBA, endorsed DeSantis for governor. There we go. And served DeSantis' public safety transition team. The PBA contributed $25,000 to DeSantis' political action committee. So this is getting kind of incestuous. You've got Jeffrey Epstein. You've got uh, uh, the sheriff, Bradshaw. Now we've got this guy Kazanjan. This is the making of a big scandal, right? 2018 statement, PBA President Kazanjan said, Ron DeSantis understands the dangers our officers face in our prisons and our streets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, fine. Uh, anyway, so it says, it's rather alarming to know that Sheriff Bradshaw found it appropriate to oversee his own internal investigation. Yeah, they do that a lot. This is what the FBI does. Well, we'll investigate ourselves. Okay. Right. It says, sexual crime in his police department under his watch was accused of being involved in. Well, that's interesting. If it wasn't for Senator Book's letter to Governor DeSantis, which resulted in a firestorm of media coverage and a public pressure campaign uh, on both the, the police benevolent folks and Governor DeSantis, perhaps Bradshaw would have gotten away with overseeing his own investigation into the All right, So it goes on and on and on, more and more letters, things like that. You get the idea. It's a big scandal. So the question is, what happens next? And so let me just uh, summarize the, the last little paragraph here. When I, when I say next, what's going to happen to Ron DeSantis? Because I don't think that he's going to get away from this. Um, Unless, of course, it's the Democrat media that doesn't want to pick it up because they want to advance him. So maybe that's part of the scandal, too. The fact that the media is not picking up on this now. And the Republican media, you know, doesn't want to do it because they like Ron DeSantis. And the Democrat media doesn't want to pick up on it because they want DeSantis to run against Trump. And the scandal's still out there. Anyways, the last... Few paragraphs say Jeffrey Epstein is dead, and the circumstances surrounding his death are questionable at best. Did Ed Jeffrey Epstein kill himself? If not, who killed Jeffrey Epstein? Why did he pay the police benevolent society $130,000 during his imprisonment while under work release? How come the officers who violated work release rules were never held accountable? These are good questions. Many questions remain unanswered and many victims have left unfulfilled of the justice they deserve to receive as victims of the sex, serial pedophile and sexual predator, thanks to Florida's failure to deliver accountability and transparency. In other words, they failed to do their job. I don't like the word transparency. It, seemed, it seems kind of wimpy. You know, I think accountability is probably stronger. Anyway, it says, while Governor DeSantis, who likes to refer to himself on the campaign trail as the law and order candidate, is running for president in the 2024 GOP primary against President Trump, Sheriff Rick Bradshaw, the longest serving sheriff in Palm Beach, well, there's a problem right there, is currently running for his sixth term as Palm Beach County Sheriff. He He should probably go too, right? He says, there's no denying that Jeffrey Epstein received preferential treatment in Florida during both the investigation of his sexual crimes as well as his incarceration, which is far from normal and highly inappropriate. Jeffrey Epstein is the ultimate Florida man story. It is a story of political power that is blind to party affiliation, a story of a broken justice system Justice and accountability can be negotiated and brokered if the price is right. That yeah, sounds about right. So much for, uh, let's see, uh, so the real scandal is whether this scandal is going to come out and affect Ron DeSantis. If it were Trump, it would be 24-hour, 7-news for until, until, until the election. Now let's talk about another person I find rather interesting, Vivek Ramaswamy. And so Vivek Ramaswamy, I'm going to go back to uh, another article and switch over here a little bit. So Vivek Ramaswamy was running against Trump, and he made a really bizarre claim. Uh, and I found this in one of the sources I use is Mediaite. In Mediaite, that's uh, M-E-D-I-A-I-T-E. Uh, Trump 2024 opponent Vivek Ramaswamy, who I'm calling Swami, Swami holds a rally outside Miami courthouse pledging to pardon Trump after beating him. So, first of all, he thinks he can beat Donald Trump. Secondly, he thinks he, can pardon, he, he should pardon him. Well, why? As we, t- we talked about this the other day, you don't pardon innocent people. You pardon guilty people. That's what a pardon is. So we know you did it. We know you're guilty. But there are extenuating circumstances and stuff that, uh, you know, we're not going to uh, hold you accountable. Your jail sentence suspended. You're a free person. We do that to guilty people. Innocent people get found innocent. They get exonerated. Uh, they get the charges dropped, they get all kinds of different things, but they don't get pardoned. You don't pardon an, an innocent person. You don't have to. There's all kinds of other things. So, so what he's trying to do is, is a psychological operation. Every time he says he's going to pardon Trump, the assumption is that Trump's guilty, and, and that's what he really wants you to know. That's the message. That's the real message. Trump is guilty. He needs to be pardoned for the good of the country. So it, it, basically, he's calling Trump Nixon. <laughs> that's what it seems like to me. So, so Trump is the new Nixon. So Swami... Everybody gets a name, right? So this Republican presidential candidate, Vivek Ramaswamy, is once again pushing his pledge to pardon former President Donald See, they always say former President Donald Trump, not just President Donald Trump. You always talk about President Carter, right, or President uh, Obama. But they, but they never say former every single time. They do with Trump because they want to make it clear that he's really not the president, even though we know he is because he won the election in 2020. Article says, former president... Oh, I should tell you who this is by and get you to time. I'm sorry, I forgot to give my credit. So Jamie... Freveli, Freveli, sounds Italian, F-R-E-V-E-L-E, June 13th, so last week. He says, Vivek Ramaswamy, once again, Donald Trump found guilty. Oh, he says, is once again pushing his pledge to pardon Trump if he is found guilty of the federal charges against him. He is also calling on every other candidate, regardless of party, to make the same pledge. Well, that's kind of stupid. First of all, Democrats would never pledge to do that. They think he's guilty. In fact, they don't even care if he's guilty. They just don't want him in the election. So they, with, everybody knows the charges are bogus. So what he should say is, instead of saying if he's found guilty of the federal charges, what he should say, if he really believed in Trump and believed in, in, the, in our system of justice and our republic, he should say he should make candidates promise to reform the judicial system, which allows the, the uh, political party to bring bogus federal charges against a political candidate, an opposing political candidate. That's what he should say. Or what he should say is these are bogus charges. What we really need to do is get them overturned. Or he should say the judge, who's a Trump-hating Democrat, should be recused and gotten rid of. And in fact, the whole trial should be thrown out. That's what he should say, but he's not. He's saying Trump should be pardoned if he's found guilty. Well, how can he be found guilty of bogus charges? How can he be found guilty when there's no evidence? How can he be found guilty of something he didn't do? And the answer is he can't. But that doesn't matter. Because he wants you to have this impression in your mind that Trump is guilty. That's what he's saying. And the idea of pardoning him? That's not the message. The message is Trump's guilty. That's the message. That's why I didn't, that's a, from then on I didn't trust this guy. I thought, wait a minute. This guy's a plant. This guy's a world government stooge. This guy, I don't know what he is, but he's not, he's not uh, some independent Republican, you know, running for uh, office out of the goodness of his heart at 37 years old, whatever he is. Then it says Swami, actually it's Rama Swami. Swami took the cameras outside Miami, on the Miami courthouse where Trump is set to be arraigned before the arraignment and used the opportunity to rally support for his commitment to truth. Well, <laughs> that's projection, folks. That's a lie. So anybody who talks about a commitment to truth is probably lying. And I think Swami is lying, too. He says, during a speech, Swami says, whoever won't sign the pledge should be prepared to explain why they won't promise to pardon. That's twice impeached, twice indicted former president. See, there you go. So this is how I know he's a Democrat, right? Because the Democrats use this line all the time. Twice impeached, twice indicted. Well, you can be, uh, you can be impeached 50 times. And the problem is, does that mean you're guilty? Or does that mean they're just bringing bogus impeachments? Well, we know they were just, the Democrats were just bringing bogus impeachments because they wanted to sabotage his administration. Twice indicted? People are indicted all the time. They're guilty. False accusations? How many people are indicted for false accusations? All the time. That's why we have a trial in the court system to weed out the false accusations, to make sure that people get all the rights. The, uh, The Bill of Rights, three of the rights, the fourth, fifth, and sixth, Actually, set four of the rights. Fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh of our Bill of Rights are dedicated to the rights of the accused because the accused get so abused in every other country. Just because you're accused doesn't mean you did it. Like my thing, I can accuse Nancy Pelosi of sleeping with fuzzy blue teddy bears. Is that real? No. Might be. I don't know. I'm just guessing. But the point is that that's just an accusation. An allegation is even, even weaker. An allegation means we think you did it with no evidence. An accusation means we think you did it and we think we have some evidence. <laughs> you know, both of them are pretty weak. Indictment means we think you did it and we convinced a, a grand jury to indict you, uh, you know, along with a ham sandwich. In other words, you can indict pretty much anybody. So it doesn't really get anywhere until the trial. But we have all kinds of trials. Sam Shepard murder trial. Didn't you guys watch The Fugitive? That was a Sam Shepard murder trial. He was innocent. You know, famous. a lot of famous people have been uh, uh, ruled... Uh, Innocent. I mean, Alan Dershowitz, who, who wrote the book "Get Trump." Here's a liberal, liberal Harvard University constitutional law professor defending Donald Trump, whom he didn't vote for. Now that's integrity. And a lot of we talked about him with uh, Tony Lyons when he was on um, with uh, Skyhorse Publishing a little bit ago. Anyway, but that's integrity. That's what it looks like. Not this guy. This guy's a liar. Anybody that uses the term "twice impeached, twice indicted." In other words, the accusation is a guilty, is a, is a conviction. That's what they're trying to say. If you're accused, you're guilty. Otherwise, why would you be accused? Anyway, so Swami is pushing the pledge. Back to the article since his announcements of last week. Uh, other GOP presidential candidates have also stood by Trump while others are explicitly campaigning against him. Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is the long shot candidate name dropped everyone, but specifically called out Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Oh, he's back for not being at the courthouse in his own home state. What does that tell you? <laughs> DeSantis has vowed to go after the Department of Justice if he becomes president, which he won't, but has not said anything specifically in support of Trump, which he won't. All right, let's get to the big, let's, let's, let's find out who this guy Swami is. So I had my suspicions, so I started looking online. And I thought, who else feels the same way I do, that Swami's a plant, Swami's not uh, a real Republican, that Swami's a Democrat or George Soros funded like the DAs, uh, who is this guy? And then I found an article by Hank Sullivan. And this is in Hank's Substack, obviously on Substack. Vivek Ramaswamy stars at Georgia GOP convention. This guy's really got some good interest. This is Vivek Ramaswamy, who I will now call Swami, at the GOP, at the Georgia GOP convention, uh, tore up the convention. In quotes, tore up the GOP convention. He says, I will give him credit. He gave a great speech. Republicans talked about Vivek all weekend. Oh, boy. He's a new golden boy of color. (laughs) Sorry. I don't know anyone who wasn't in the back of the article. I don't know anyone who wasn't impressed, even delighted with Ramaswamy's speech. But to me, it was unsettling that someone I had never heard of six weeks ago could arise from the ether, be handed the stage at the Columbus Convention, and overwhelm an audience as he did. Yeah. I think your instincts are right on there, Hank. He said it was unsettling because the last individual I saw do that was a young man by the name of Barack Obama. See? Who similarly arrived out of nowhere, known by only a few insiders, was handed center stage at the 2004 Democrat National Convention and likewise, quote, tore it up. Those are words Obama uses all the time.
1: Oh, tear you up.
0: Anyway, uh, anyway, so four years later, Obama became the, a senator from Illinois. Four years after that, Obama became president of the United States. We know what happened since. Yeah, the most unconstitutional administration in history. Whew. And Benghazi and Hillary and endless uh, other things that went wrong. Anyway, article says, thus to say, I'm going to make it a little brighter so I can read it. Here we go. Thus, to say I was a little apprehensive about Swami, my word, would be an understatement. I decided to look into this man. Who is V. Ramaswamy? What is his story? How did he get all that money at age 37? What is his motivation? Did he decided to run for president, especially now. I had certain suspicions. What I found out was different than I originally imagined. So I hope you'll come along with the deep dive. Right, let's go. He says, education, early career. Education, early career experience. Vivek Ramaswamy, a.k.a. Swami, or at least it appears to be, uh, or at least it appears to be, a highly successful 37-year-old entrepreneur. Wow. By some estimates, he's worth over $600 million. (laughs) But not so much. Born and raised in Ohio to parents who immigrated from India at age 22, he graduated summa cum laude in biology from Harvard. Soon after graduating, he appreciates He gets one of those foreign person of color scholarships. Who knows, right? So Born and raised in Ohio to parents who immigrated from India to, 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 to biology from Harvard. Okay. Soon after graduating, however, rather than pursuing a career, Christian Field, which is what most people do, right? Vivek pivoted, starting a career as a biotech analyst investor at QBT Financial, a prominent hedge fund. So how does a 22-year-old biology under, you know, graduate from Harvard wind up uh, as a biotech analyst investor at uh, QBT Financial? Big hedge fund. Well, obviously, somebody paved the way for him. <laughs> you just knock on the door as a biologist. Say, hey, I work for you guys. Yeah, right. Article says with his only credential as an undergraduate degree, oh, an undergraduate degree in biology, uh, in time, Vivek Ramaswamy began his job managing hedge funds. He had no time or experience, no certification. Wait, he didn't have a Series Seven? Got to have a Series Seven to to be a broker, right? Series Seven title exam, whatever it's called. Series Seven stockbroking financial exam. All brokers have it. You got it. It's called the Series Seven actually go on myself. I, wanted, I was thinking of being a stock worker for flight school. I uh, tried being a stock for a day. Couldn't stand it. <laughs> but I got, I got my Series 7. That's how I know investment stuff. Well, Swami began his job managing hedge funds. He had no time or experience, no certification, no formal education of financial markets, no experience in portfolio management or asset allocation. Spinning is sounds a lot like Hunter Biden, isn't it? This is the extent of Vivek's involvement in hedge fund management came to him by virtue of two summer internships while at Harvard. Oh, isn't that special? The 19-year-old biology made his first summer interning with a since-defunct $9 billion hedge fund. They lost $9 billion? This from Amaranth Advisors. Looking back, Vivek would tell interviewers he opted interning. Uh, at the hedge fund over biology, because quote, the thought that working in the firm's biotech division, where a team of doctors and scientists evaluated stocks for the firm to invest in might be more exciting than working in the lab. Hmm. Thus, according to Vivek, he makes decisions based on certain hope for excitement. Well, I do that. I don't know. I, don't, I don't that. This is the second summer Ramaswamy, or Swami, <laughs> spent interning at Goldman Sachs. Hmm her then and before as major democrat donors, where he had little in the way of responsibility, little or no hedge fund investing training, and worked in the in an environment he later referred to as a charade. Yep, that's definitely sounding like Obama. He says so, there you have the extent of Vivek Ramaswamy's knowledge and experience in investing and managing hedge funds prior to taking a job uh, doing just that at QBT. He's got a lack of formal training. he doesn't even have a management or a finance degree. He's got nothing. He's biology undergrad. And then you have know, a graduate degree. He's like Fauci, <laughs> you know, Doctor Fascist. Doctor Fascist only has a basic medical degree. He doesn't have a. He doesn't have expertise in, in vi- virology or any special molecular biology. He doesn't have anything beyond a basic MD. Now, a basic MD is pretty good. I mean, it's definitely a graduate level degree, but it's a basic doctor degree. It's not, it's not like a specialty, like all the other people through jail, like my friend Judy. Anyway, he says despite a lack of formal training in financial matters, while managing QVT investments being struck twice for the market for the rookie hedge fund manager. How did that happen? It like, uh, it like <laughs> yeah, this is like this is like Yeah, this is this is definitely the the Obama Hunter Biden you know combination candidate here. So in 2008, he began a program of buying shares of a little known biotech company, Pharmacet, Pharmasset, P H A R M A S S E T, at five dollars a share. Three years later, Pharmacet would be purchased by Gilead at 137 thousand dollars a share. Okay, folks. Quiz time. Who knows what Gilead produces? Come on. Who knows what Gilead produces? Do, 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 do. Drink a water while you're thinking. Mm. mm. Okay, that's better. Gilead produces remdesivir. Oh, yeah. The remdesivir ventilator death march. Hmm. Sounding familiar? <laughs> okay. So Gilead is owned by Mrs. Rand Paul. That's why Rand Paul, Senator Rand Paul, will go after Dr. Fascist, but he will never quite... Or Gilead because his wife owns too much stock in it. That's what we call insider trading, folks. And uh, we also call that corruption. <laughs> yeah. All right. So back to the article. In 2008, he, in other words, Swami, began a program of buying shares. All right, I said that. All right. So he goes. So he goes farm asset five bucks a share. Then uh, those five dollar shares go to 137, dollars which is a rather substantial profit in the what the 800 the <laughs> percent. I don't know what it is anyway. Um, 137 is one of the largest farm massive shareholders by then. QBT did very well. Of course it did. Vivek worked his magic a second time, purchasing another small but promising company, greatly profiting QBT and becoming a partner in the firm as a result. Was that skill or was that luck? Or my theory, was he uh, given insider trading information and being groomed for a run? Uh, against President Trump. Anyway, article says either way, managing hedge funds did not prove as exciting as Vivek first imagined to stimulate his demanding intellect. <laughs> In twenty ten, while still working at QBT, with the company's blessing, Vivek began moonlighting as a student of law at Yale University. Well, there we go. Now we're getting to the good stuff. After three years Vivek earned his degree, which hmm, what's usual for law law school, three years. Cleaning a personal projects he would later claim to he undertook purely for the intellectual experience, oh really for the intellectual stimulation. He was graduating at tw- in 2013 at age 28. To help pay for his intellectual experience, Vivek took advantage of a $90,000 $90, scholarship from the Paul and Daisy Soros Fellowships for New Americans. <gasps> There's the Soros connection. Okay, graduating in 2013 at age 28. Wait a minute, 28 from law school? Well, I guess he did some work first, and then he went back to law school. To help pay for his intellectual experience, Vivek took advantage of a ninety dollars Thousand dollars scholarship from Nepal and Daisy Soros, S-O-R-O-S, Soros Fellowships for the New American, new Americans. What, what do you mean by New American? Well, oh, because he moved here from India? So wait a minute, how come I didn't get one? I was a New American back in 1981 when I got my American citizenship. How come I didn't get one of these $90,000 scholarships? Because what, what, I'm not a person of color? Because I'm a dude? <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Because I'm conservative? Actually, I'm way more. You know, I make conservatives look liberal. Anyway, so, so the article says, who is Paul Soros? Paul Soros. Paul. Paul is George Soros's brother. Ooh, does he have a relationship of some sort with the Soros family. Well, of course he does. Because we don't know. But before announcing his presidential bid, concerned that any relationship with Soros would tarnish his image, which it would, Vivek paid a Wikipedia editor to remove references to Soros. The edits completed two weeks prior to his announcement. That would be for president. Huh? Huh. Yeah, Vivek, why don't you come to my show? Let me ask you some questions. That'd be fun. Because thus, we know young Vivek Ramaswamy, known as Swami, (laughs) was a brilliant Harvard biology student who never worked a day in biology. (laughs) And we know he was at least a competent Yale law student who never took the buyer exam and never practiced law and who paid for his degree out of money received from George Soros's brother. Finally, we know Vivek gets bored easily, always the next big thing to excite his senses and stimulate his intellect. I don't know. know. How about, uh, you know, crack cocaine and Burisma? Why don't you go see Hunter Biden? Probably Bud's. So then it says starting his first company. Instead of pursuing a career in law within a year of graduating Yale, Vivek Swami uh, opted to put his talents to work in a field in which he had no training, to speak of in no experience and very little apparent knowledge. The pharmaceutical industry. Huh. huh So there's your Gilead. There's your there's your connect to uh, this this company. Let's see if we go back a bit. Where is this this oh yeah, so the Pharmacet. So he gets the he gets the, the uh QBT finances. Then he, he buys Pharmacet. that's bought by Gilead which makes for him and now we get this other uh, pharmaceutical thing. So he founded Rovian Sciences, back to the article, in 2014, to be a pharmaceutical holding company serving as its CEO until 2021, hmm. after the 2020 election. Okay. Vivek had the idea of drug formulations previously shelled by major pharmaceutical companies establishing various corporate subsidies to conduct additional research, undertake clinical trials, and is successful bring these drugs to the market. Mm-hmm. Although Vivek had no experience running a business at any level, somehow he capitalized Robiant in an IPO, that's an initial public offering, raising $93 million from investors. This guy's good. He can do no wrong. He's like the golden child. He's the superstar. He's the man. Vivek Ramaswamy, do no wrong. And then it says, that's the, that was all me talking. And then back to the article, it says, and somehow he recruited several well-known Democrat figures to become board members, including... Former Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle, Hmm. former Secretary of Health and Human Services under President Barack Obama, that would be Kathleen Sebelius, and former Administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Service, Donald Berwick. And if you know, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Service is the government agency that is paying all the hospitals to kill people on remdesivir and ventilators. One big happy family? Yes, they are. So don't expect Vivek, if he gets to be president, to be signing our vaccine product liability bill anytime soon. The first drug Vivek attempted to bring to market was one previously shelved by GlaxoSmithKline, one engineered to treat Alzheimer's and the other cognitive disorders, for which he bought the rights to further develop, investing $5 million. Vivek established an offshore entity in Bermuda, probably to hide his money, uh, ExoVant, to own and perform the work, subsequently capitalizing ExoVant into the largest IPO initial public offering ever undertaken, immediately raising over $300 million for his products. That's where he makes all his money, right? All this insider trading, all this corrupt stuff, right? So that was a remarkable amount to raise considering Axel Vance had no marketable product to sell. So why would you invest in a company that has no product? Well, you wouldn't, unless it's part of a pyramid bribe, you know, grooming scheme for, for this guy for, for politics. Anyway, it says, the bat Vivek Ramaswamy, or the brass ring with others, Better capitalized and more knowledgeable has always fallen short of grasping. In other words, he didn't have the knowledge or experience to do what he was doing. Okay, anyway, this is, this is I'm going to be a article in a this Is it difficult not to notice the amount of non, unnatural, unfounded uh, invest investors consistently uh, place in Vivek Ramaswamy? No, well, that's interesting. He had no training in business, not even a childhood paper route. He had never worked in the business so much as a bag boy for a. Long- store, yet, he navigated various, uh, yet as he navigated various career paths, investors jumped at the chance of allowing him to manage their hedge funds and to give him money to start a business with developing a long-shot drug in, in, in the initial development. With deep pockets and an experience of client, that's a huge pharmaceutical, right? Deciding he would never uh, decide, uh, decided would never panic. Oh, I'll read that sentence again. It's a big sentence. He had no training in business, not even a childhood, had never worked in business uh, so much as a bag boy for a local grocery store. Yet, he, as he navigated various career paths, investors jumped at the chance of allowing him to manage their hedge funds and to give him money to start a business tasked with developing a long shot drug, uh, the initial developer, with deep pockets and the experience of GlaxoSmithKline, deciding would never pan out. That's a bad sense. Vivek uh, thought differently and convinced investors to have faith in what he told them, so they gave him all that money based on a hunch. What was it that he, he did? Yeah, same old stuff here, okay. <laughs> There's a phone one here. Vivek's companies generally lose money. Since for all his tuted, touted, success, the Ramaswamy's companies, led by flagship Roviant, generally operated a loss. That's from Fortune magazine. Saying his flagship company, Roviant, has, sin- has never once turned a profit since going public, losing $433 million in 2020, $698 million in 2021, and a whopping $1.12 billion in 2022, with Bloomberg predicting another $103 billion in losses in 2023. And this is the guy that the Republicans want running our national treasury? This is-, this is funny. But the sad part is you didn't hear this anywhere in the news. This is not being reported. But I am because I found it interesting. I'm trying to get Hank on the show. He says having built a personal fortune despite the unprofitability of his businesses of his companies, Vivek ultimately decided to move on from Rovian day to day operations. In early 2021, either voluntarily or forced by the board, Vivek Ramaswamy stepped down as CEO, once again turning his attention to something else. Constantly searching for excitement, and next big thing. Well, you get the idea. Uh, there's more on, on the back. I don't know if i come back to it. I might try another time. I think what I'll do is take a break and then come back and play you um, my uh, my WEBY piece and then see how much more I want to do an article. So like I said, you know, I got Mark on the line on uh, live chat. No one else is calling. So, you know, when you don't call, I get bored. And then I just do other things. All right. Let me see if I can play a couple more things for you, and I'll be back in just a little bit here. See, yesterday I went through almost four hours, but I was having fun you are calling people are talking to me. Much better situation. All right, back in a bit. Do you know your way around health care, insurance, pharmacies, surgery, alternative treatments and choices? I don't, which is why I'm so glad I met Priscilla Romans, had her on Action Radio, and learned about health patient advocacy. She is the founder of Great Care. at gracecare.adm at gmail.com or call them at 469-864-7149. That's 469-864-7149. Great Care, better health through better knowledge and advocacy. Hello, this is Greg Penglis for our newest shooting range here in Milton, Florida. self-defense classes, concealed carry weapons classes, security license training, paintball, a full-service gun store, and 24-7 online ordering. So come on down or contact them by phone, email, or website and learn how you can best stand your ground. This is Greg Penglis. So what is Action Radio? It is a radio show with its own citizen legislature. That's you, the listener. It is a fully interactive system of listeners, expert guests, social media, writing bills, legislator input, bill submission, lobbying, and citizen action. Action Radio is the future of talk radio, using all the available technology in one completely integrated new system. All right, we're back, and uh, set this up here for you. So I have um, an interview back from WBY. So WBY was the station where I got my first full-time job in radio. And, again, I was in California in San Francisco. Uh, so I, I got the call from uh, Mike Bates four months after open heart surgery. It took two days to load up my U-Haul because, you know, I had to take a lot of breaks because I had to walk up and down stairs, and that's not something you want to do that soon after heart surgery. Um, but I was just crazy enough to try it. Anyway, so I came out here. Started my, uh, my dream job. Loved my station. Lo- I had a great producer. Uh, I loved the studio. I loved everything about it. It was just, it was just way too much fun. Anyway, um, then it was bought by another station, and we were all fired. Me first. That's the basic story of WPY, but it was one of the last independent stations in this area. It's one of the last independent stations anywhere. Most of the stations have been bought up, syndicated, play uh, regular standard programming, and they're, they're boring. They're, they're so boring and dull. This was actually a fun place to be. And I, I was, thought I'd retire from here. I thought I found my radio job. I'm staying here. The show will get big. I'll be online. I'll be national. I'll be huge, maybe even national. And uh, I found my career finally at the age of 57. And it uh, didn't quite work out that way. So I came to Block Talk. So I managed to, to secure all my interviews uh, from WBY. And uh, I'm sort of gradually putting them on podcasts here so that people have a chance to hear them because, you know, that, there's no other way you'd hear. These things. And I wanted the record for myself, you know, just to, and for whatever, you know, whatever stuff is filed away on me from way back when. Anyway, so this was a, this is a cool interview. It's Alex Stewart, who is the Florida director of Students for Concealed Carry or it's the Students for Campus Carry it's one or the other. Anyway, Students for Concealed. Yeah, the Students for Campus Carry. So this was a college group. A national group that was promoting uh, the idea that students can actually be adults and exercise their rights to carry guns you know, on a university campus just like they carry guns out in uh, in public. And so, because eighteen-year-olds are adults, uh, and eighteen-year-olds you know go to, go to college, uh, usually at least by eighteen. Um, yeah, but eighteen. I started at seventeen, but I was weird. I turned eighteen, you know, first semester. Anyway, point being that you cannot deny adults their rights just because they go to college. And so this is what this is about, besides the fact there were school shootings on college campuses, because college campuses banned guns, and so the criminals brought their guns there. You know, that's how it works, right? Gun-free zone is, a, is a, uh, basically a gun, um, you know, is like a victim target zone is what it is. Anyway, so we had a great discussion. Part of it's moot, though, because Florida, once they raised the age of owning a handgun from 18 to 21, and most undergrads graduate at 21, uh, or 22 somewhere in there. They really, you know, I, I can see where they were, didn't have a lot of justification for it. But a lot of interesting things came up in this interview, which is why I wanted to play it. It was quite fascinating. Uh, I thought so anyway. So as usual, you'll get. Well, let me turn the volume down. There we go. I keep forgetting to do the video. Um, so when you hear W-E-B-Y and phone numbers that aren't two one five three eight three three eight three two, and different things like that, that's from the old station. So they're kind of in there because taking them out makes it really awkward <laughs> sometimes. And it's kind of fun to hear, too. So anyway, so this is W-E-B-Y, uh, March 13th of 2017. So I started radio March 1st of 2017. So this is basically 12 days after my first day in radio. That was my full-time experience. Before that, I'd done five shows for one station, uh, another show for another station. And I had very little experience. I had a couple, some college radio and some other things like that. So, so at this point, I'm still really new to radio. So you can tell little flaws and things that I don't do now as much, which is good. All right, let's get going. And Alex uh, Stewart, the uh, uh, students for uh, campus carry, March thirteenth of twenty seventeen. Yeah,
2: baby.
0: It's that time again. in the morning, it's time for Action Radio. Greg your host here. 623-1330 is the number to call in, 623-1330. If you're listening at 1330weby.com online, you can call us at 850-623-1330. And we have a guest, and let's introduce him right now. He is the Florida State Director for Students for Concealed Carry. He is a recent graduate in computers and works as a computer engineer. Students for Concealed Carry is made up of different and varied individuals in a student-run, national, nonpartisan organization which advocates for legal concealed carry on college campuses as an effective means of self-defense. Please welcome the Florida State Director, Mr. Alex Stewart. And there we go. Alex, welcome. Thank you. All right, let's get going here. So uh, so students for Concealed Carry, you guys got started. Uh, I was reading uh, from your website there, which is really great, concealedcampus.org, uh, um, with the Virginia Tech shooting. Can you give us the origins and what happened and how this all came about and who did it and uh, how you got started? Right.
3: Well, the Virginia Tech shooting and really all the shootings that started happening, let's say, a decade ago, um, sort of provoked into action all these students and faculty around the country who have been very concerned with our actual ability to provide for our safety on campus, Um, and there was really a growing movement on these universities of of small bodies, small student organizations who were trying to to get political capital and capital on campus to change their rules and change their regulations and change their statutes to allow them to actually provide for their own protection in meaningful ways, uh, which in our case means lawful carry of firearms. Um, and the Virginia Tech shooting was really what sparked the, uh, the development of a national network of students and faculty, and, and that's students for concealed carry. So every every state has its own its own uh, every state is, is in a different position with mm-hmm. that fight. Every state sort of operates differently, um, but we're really moving as a as a cohesive body, and it's sort of like a, a cultural movement, if you will.
0: Well, it's really interesting. Um, There were more of these shootings and absolute tragedies. And the Virginia Tech one, wasn't there a guy with a rifle up in a tower or something like that that got this? And he was there for for quite a while.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: If I remember the story. Um, and so the, the question, you know, then is, it, was any studies done as to why these things were happening at that particular time? Because there, there was a rash of these, and right now it doesn't seem to be, fortunately, you know, happening a, as much. I mean, we had the incident just the other day, but that seems more of a, of a, of a dispute between two people, you know, rather than a, a particular school one, whereas, you know, these folks are targeting schools um, because, I guess, because you can't defend them so, yourselves on a school. Is it, what was the thinking about why these things were happening then? And not now
3: But I'm aware the the science is really Still out on exactly what's causing the rash Of them recently Um, It's certainly likely that a major motivator Is that colleges, especially Gun-free colleges, are a Prime prime target For someone who's looking for easy victims Um, I know that It's a a working theory within the law enforcement Community and and within the communities Who have to actually respond to active shooters um, That active shooters are, Are kind of unique among criminals in that they are usually stopped by the very first resistance that they meet.
1: Whether oh, okay. that's a
3: armed officer or whether that's just a teacher they know who shows up and says, hey, stop, you know, it, it's time to put down that weapon. Usually the first resistance that they meet is, is the resistance that stops them, um, which is, I think, one of the, the biggest reasons why campus carry is is such a a, a tempting or a, a valuable tool to use against active shooters, because we can provide that first resistance very quickly, much more quickly than responding to mm-hmm. law enforcement camps.
0: Well, you also have a lot more people. You know, we were talking about that yesterday as to how many people could actually be on a campus. So let's talk about that now. If you have about a 20,000-student campus, how did, you, how did you break that down?
3: Uh, well, we can go into what I talked about yesterday, but I actually have even better numbers. For oh,
0: good. Well, let's go into those, yeah.
3: So I was the president of the University of Florida chapter um, for quite a while. And the University of Florida has about 50,000 uh, registered students. Uh, it varies year to year, but throughout 50,000. Now, some of those are, are remote students, but let's say 20,000, 25,000 is a good estimate for how many students and faculty are, are on campus at any one point in time. Okay. When I spoke with the University of Florida Police Department, they were telling me that their, their normal shit is to have 10 officers patrolling the campus, and keep in mind this is a 60-acre campus, and two of those officers will be uh, SWAT officers. Okay. So you can imagine you have 20,000, 25,000 people on a 60-acre campus that need protecting, and you have 10, maybe 12 officers who can actually respond to an incident.
0: Well, not only needs protecting, but needs protecting, and they're disarmed. They can't protect themselves.
3: That's true. Though, though I will say it is a mistake to think that there are no firearms on college campuses. Um, I I will tell you, and I can tell you from from not firsthand experience, but I guess secondhand experience, that there are many faculty and staff who do carry on campus in deference to the law right now. Okay. Uh, not ill-meaning, uh, not ill-meaning people not looking to do any harm, just people who are. We say, you know what, I'm you know, nuts to the law. I'm going to carry anyway.
0: Um, well, the law is unconstitutional, and there's a – Supreme Court has said that if a law is unconstitutional, it doesn't exist, yet you can still get prosecuted under that law if you're caught. So how, how, did, how does this get resolved? What are the, do you have lawyers that work with you? I mean, what do they say about the whole legal issue of preventing students, adult students, 21 years old, from exercising their constitutional rights just because they're students on campus? Where, where does that come down?
3: You know that's the thing there there's a difference between what the law should be and and who actually gets prosecuted and what that means hmm. um in florida the the way the statutes generally work out is that what's set at the statutory level what's said at the state level concerning firearms is usually a preemption of all local laws okay. including uh, rules that are set on public universities so in, in areas that the state laws cover And the the allowances that state laws make, those are generally protected on campus. So, for example, on Florida campuses, you can keep weapons in your vehicle because that's specifically protected at the state level. But because the state level doesn't specifically protect your ability to carry on campus if you're a licensed uh, CWFL holder, uh, universities are in practice given latitude to, uh, you know, prosecute that.
0: Hmm. We got a little distracted with our numbers, so I want to get back to those just for a bit here. So we have a campus of 50,000, you figure 20,000 active students, 10 police officers, 2 SWAT, and they have to protect that entire area. Why don't we get back to our our, uh, our categories here?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can imagine that if if you allow all people who are licensed to carry a concealed weapon to do so on campus, mm-hmm. some fraction of those people are actually going to be carrying it at any given point in time. So let's say... Of 20,000 students and faculty, let's say 100 people um, actually carry on campus because of campus carry uh, being allowed. That's that's increases the number of people who can potentially respond to an incident by a factor of 10. Um, Now, obviously, law enforcement and concealed carriers are in a slightly different position because concealed carriers aren't at the tactical advantage that law enforcement are. So we're not going to be running around, running necessarily to go seek out a gunman. But right. if you can imagine, you're you're seeding you're a campus community with these carriers, you're you're dramatically increasing the likelihood that a shooter on campus is going to meet that immediate resistance, which is likely to stop them.
0: Yeah, you've mentioned that before. That's really interesting. So these people are are basically cowards that will do that will commit mayhem and death, but you can stop them. You know, with any kind of you know resistance. What what's the psychology of these people? Has that been looked into?
3: Uh, you know that's something that people are still are, are still investigating. Um, I recall reading uh, in a book on combat, which is an excellent book, um, by uh, Lieutenant Colonel Eric Grossman. He um, was a, a military combat psychologist. He talks about an incident um, I, I want to say Tennessee, somewhere in the deep south, um, where a student decided he was going to shoot up his school. He brought in a shotgun to begin shooting, um, and his homeroom teacher just sort of stepped out and said, "Hey, you know, stop. It's 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 time to it's time to stop what you're doing." And that was all it took for him to be like, okay, my, my shooting spree is over. Um, you can call them cowards. That's one way to put it. I think it, it's probably likely that they have a plan to expect to be stopped, right? They know they're going to try and kill as many and you know, people as is possible until someone stops them. And I think once you provide that resistance, that that sort of checks the box in their head that says, okay, you know, I'm done.
0: That's interesting. It's almost like they become children again. In other words, they're, they're actively the, they can be the worst criminals on the planet, you know, doing the, these horrible things. And then if, if faced with the resistance, they go back to like child mode and say, okay, I'll be good. I'll stop doing it. That's, that's Ooh. a strange psychology. Yeah. Huh? Have you looked into psychotropic drugs? Because I know that there was a big issue a few years ago. We're over-medicating over-medic- our kids, and one of the uh, the side effects and symptoms is like homicidal and suicidal behavior. And we throw those words out like it doesn't mean anything, but it does. It means a whole lot. And sure. so has has, has anybody, anybody been, have you guys been tracking the drug use and, and that propensity for violence?
3: I haven't personally. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. It's, it's just something I'm not, I'm not an expert on.
0: Yeah. Well, you're a computer guy, so, you know, I mean, you've got, you, you, you got your expertise. If somebody
3: shoots up computers, I'll, I'll know exactly what to do.
0: <laughs> That's great. We're going to take a little break now and uh, come sure. back. And I want to find out exactly what you do, what the situation is with students for concealed carry uh, on the campuses in Florida. Let's go over which universities are doing it, which ones you'd like to get, what your job is, and all that good stuff. When we come back, it's 816 in the morning. We're with Alex Stewart, who is the Florida State Director of Students for Concealed Carry. You can get on the line at 623-1330 with your questions and comments, and we'll be back. Hey, good morning. My guest is Alex Stewart, and uh, he's the uh, Florida State Director for Students for Concealed Carry. Alex, welcome back be here. There we go. Okay, 8:21 in the morning. So let's talk about what you do and what's going on with the Florida situation with uh, students for a concealed carry.
3: Sure. So the way we work is that we are basically a network of student organizations at various universities and colleges across the state. Um, so we, we really are honest to God just a bunch of students and faculty can meet on campus. Um, and my job as state director is basically to coordinate each of those chapters to act as a voice at the state level when we'll give it to the state legislature to argue in favor of Bills like campus carry.
0: So you were talking before um, that most of the activity is at the state level. It's not really on the campuses um, because you have bills that that you're working towards. Which which bills? What are the successes? Where you, where do you want to go? And, and what's happening at the state uh, legislative level, especially now the legislature's in session?
3: Uh, that's true. So we we've been going up there for I think three to four years now. Um, usually we'll have a campus carry bill. Um, In Florida, that means that we have a bill that basically strikes out exactly one sentence in the state statutes that prohibit people with concealed weapons licenses from carrying on campus. Um, The last three years, that bill has been stonewalled. Um, Hmm. Every single time it has gotten to a subcommittee, um, and the chairman has just decided that he isn't going to schedule that bill, and they're not going to hear it. Um, When we do actually get to argue before subcommittees, we generally do pretty well. Um, last year, we passed through all the House subcommittees, went to the House floor, passed at the House, um, went through two of the four uh, Senate subcommittees, and just like the year prior, uh, we got to the Judiciary Subcommittee, which at the time was chaired by uh, Senator Miguel Diaz de la Portilla,
1: hmm.
3: um, who is a Republican from Miami, uh, and he decided he did not like Kansas carry. so he just decided not to schedule that bill and not hear it, um, and so it died in the Senate. For two years in a row, um, this year uh, Miguel diaz is not in his uh, is not in the Senate. He's been replaced by Senator Stuby, um, who is a uh, incredibly pro-gun senator. Um, he he makes our job a lot easier.
1: That's and good. Yeah.
3: This, this year, I, I believe the Republicans are trying to capitalize on the on the capital they've gained, um, and we actually have a bevy of pro-gun bills going through the House and Senate right now. Okay. Um, we actually have a few different a few different bills that all accomplish uh, removing the prohibition on campus carry.
0: Do you have some bill numbers and ways that people can contact you and contact their legislatures? What's, uh, what uh, What can people do to help?
3: Uh, sure. So the the best thing you can do right now, and I know everybody says this, but it really is important specifically for this issue because this is a niche issue, is to contact your representative and let them know that you care about this issue and that you're for it. Um, A lot of these representatives just don't have a whole lot of people telling them that they want campus carry. They they got plenty of of constituents who want open carry, want general uh, 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 concealed carry laws to go through, but not a whole lot of people asking for campus carry. So the most important thing is that you let your representatives know that you care about this issue. Hmm. Um, Specifically, uh, Senate Bill 622. Um, is is a traditional campus carry bill. It just removes uh, the single sentence that that right now is prohibiting campus carry. Um, there's also Senate Bill 908, um, which Senator Baxley is is sponsoring. And Senate Bill 908 is kind of interesting because it basically guts all of the prohibitions um, that are currently on the books for concealed weapons license holders. So all the places like courthouses, um, uh, police stations, places like that where Currently, people with BWFLs yeah, are prohibited from carrying uh, would be permitted
0: to possibly join us here, but uh, people you might want to get in touch with. Um, Allison Nielsen and, and Kevin Derby over at Sunshine State News. Uh, Allison's a reporter. Uh, Kevin is the senior political writer. I've had them both on my show. Uh, Kevin, first time yesterday, and he's going to be a regular. Allison already is. But they can publicize this for you, and they can, uh, you know, see if you can get an interview, and I'm sure they will, and, and get some stories, particularly on these bills right now while they're in the legislature, and then people will be able to read about it, get the bill numbers in front of them, and uh, that might help out have you had any contact with these folks previously
3: uh, i have not okay it'll be great
0: yeah well that's why i emailed everybody last night I said, yeah i gotta get together on this you know you're all working you know for the same thing so let's uh, let's see what we can do and also um so which campuses are you on right now in florida uh
3: from the univer- our biggest campuses are the university of florida the university of central florida and florida state university
0: how many members are we talking about
3: uh we're talking let's say 60 70
0: Okay, so sixty or seventy students, and this is among those three colleges.
3: These are active students. These are students who are are, are among the pool of people who were asking to come to the legislature and speak.
0: Okay, are they? Do are you training student lobbyists to go speak?
3: Uh, we don't call them lobbyists, but yeah, we are. We are.
0: What do you call, call them? 30. I was a lobbyist. I didn't we think it that had a bad term. What, it, there's, there's
3: a lot of a lot of legal implication to lobbyists.
0: Oh, okay. So, what do you call your students? Advocates. Okay. And so do you have, like, a training program so they learn about the legislation, learn how to speak before committees and things?
3: Uh, we do sometimes offer those. Uh, we're working on a limited budget because, honestly, we're a bunch of college kids.
0: Yep.
1: But
3: uh, we, we, ha- we do have opportunities like that where we, uh, we provide training sessions to some of our students.
0: Well, that's good. I'm curious about the psychology, though, with the legislature, and I'm wondering if somehow they had this idea because these are Republicans who you you'd think we would be conservative and are perfectly willing to pass, you know, bills. Uh, they're working on open carry. You know, the, 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 Florida was the leader with a concealed carry shell issue. But do you think there's something about students that they feel, well, we need to protect them. We don't want guns on campus. This is, if we just put our head in the sand, maybe this will go away. And just the idea of students carrying guns, stu- even though they're adults, we're talking 21-year-old adults that have every other right, but do you think that there's something going on that we just want to keep that, that this nice little idealistic paradise of the campus without guns?
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. That's probably one of the most common, I guess, concern, you could say, that I hear from the opposition, is that they they want to keep academia as some sort of safe space where firearms are not allowed, as though it's going to somehow degrade the quality of your education.
0: Yeah, but they're doing um, just kind of the opposite. opposite. They're creating a gun free zone instead of a gun freedom zone, as I call them. They're actually, you know, making you guys targets.
3: Sure. Yeah, and I'm I went through four years of college with a handgun within reach pretty much all the time that I wasn't on campus, so I can testify that it, it definitely does not impede your ability to learn. In fact, it probably helps.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that makes a lot of sense. You know, I mean the, the whole psychology. When I first became a gun owner, way, 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 way back when, you know, I was I was kind of afraid to have it in the house. I'm thinking, oh boy, this is this is strange, unusual, and different. And within a sh- few short months, I was afraid not to have it in the house. So it's, mm-hmm. it's an adaptation process. Just nuts and bolts issue. How do students carry concealed? Because I'm thinking you've got classes, you've got backpacks, you're sitting in these uncomfortable desks that are made for five-year-olds. You know, you've got all these things going on. You've got lunch, you've got gym, you've got sports practice. How are students actually carrying concealed?
3: Sure. Well, I guess gym is an interesting question. Yeah. That'd be, I mean, that's, I guess, up to whoever is going to the gym. Otherwise... I guess I would recommend either like a three flock carry or an appendix carry. Um, a five or six slot carry is, is probably not ideal, just given given that you're probably wearing a backpack and it'd be difficult to get to the weapon if you needed it, and probably uncomfortable otherwise.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so back, uh, people carrying in their backpacks?
3: People carrying in their backpacks? I wouldn't recommend because, because I don't know how active you are in, in the in the concealed carry. Uh, community, but we call that off-body carry. Oh, okay. um, that's where you, you store a gun in your backpack or in a purse or something like that. We generally don't encourage that because you can imagine, especially with a purse but also with a backpack, you're setting these bags down, they might end up getting, you know, uh, displaced from you for a little bit, and it's not difficult for someone to pick up your bag and walk off with it. It's a tempting target. Yeah. So generally, we like to keep our weapons on our person at all time.
0: Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot to this. I mean, we, we talk about this often, but, you know, the, the whole nuts and bolts thing. I'm going to be – I'm from California, orig- well, not originally, but before this, and nobody had this right. So what I'm hoping to do is to get you in touch with uh, the folks. I would love to see uh, uh, students for concealed carry, like on Berkeley, for example. Um, we had the president of the Berkeley College Republicans, Jose Diaz, on, uh, I think, a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to try and get him on again because we only got about halfway through the interview. That's where they had the big riots when Milo Yiannopoulos was going to speak, and I think Ann Coulter is going to try and speak there in the near future. And if ever there was a place where it would be fun just to announce that you want to have uh, a concealed carry, students for a concealed carry, Berkeley is the place to go. So liberal colleges, uh, do you have any impact there, or, or, or are all colleges trying to get rid of you? or, or how, does the, you know, what, what, how do you approach a college? How does this actually work?
3: I wouldn't say all colleges are trying to get rid of us. Um, we definitely get a lukewarm reception from college administration. Okay. Um, I think colleges generally don't like what they perceive as, as a liability to them, um, though it is really not. And in Florida, all of our colleges, you could say are liberal colleges. They're definitely left-leaning. Okay. Um, so it's usually not an entirely welcoming atmosphere, but there's very little that they can do administratively, assuming we keep our nose clean, which we always do, right. um, that they can they, they can do to stop
0: Interesting. Let's take a little break, and we'll talk about the, the kind of students that are in this, you know, the various majors and things, and the fact that you want people that are risk-averse. You don't want the crazy folks. You want very calm, cool students. So let's talk about that when we get back. It's 8.30. Inviting um, calls at six two three thirteen thirty. if you want to learn about Campus Carry. If you're on a campus and you want to get the group there, um, all this is fair game. So let's go, and it's 8.31. I'll be back in just a little bit. The oh. Let's get uh, let's get Pete in the conversation. Pete, what's on your
4: mind? Take this conversation. Can you hear me all right? Can now. All right, yeah. Uh, I've been uh, carrying for a long time. I went to Scammy High School way back in the 70s. They had the race riots back there, and I carried a little Beretta 950B with me. In high school? Yeah, in high school.
0: Interesting. Wasn't,
4: it, wasn't legal. So you, I wasn't going to die. Uh, and, okay. and and the kind of police knew it. Some of my cop friends, we were black powder buddies. We'd go black powder, and they'd kind of whisk me through a different door through the metal detector, and, boy, they would have got in trouble, you know? But it was just a bad situation. A lot of people really got seriously hurt there. And by law, we had to go to school, and I said, well, what could I do? And uh, so, but I was an instructor at a PJC. That's the old college, junior college, the old school name of it, for a while. And one thing I observed is... Uh, the their, the students seem to not be uh, mature like we were, I guess, you know? I don't know. They just seem to be kind of childish-like. And this was 15 years ago, you know? And some of the kids nowadays, it seems like they don't know whether they're boys or girls. They don't know whether we came from monkeys. They don't know whether it's millions of years or 6,000 or, you know, whatever. You you, you know, I don't know if they're, are they intelligent enough to, to be able to carry a, a a sidearm? I'm not sure. I mean, hmm. I have no problem with it.
0: Did you have uh, any kind of uh, rifle teams or school shooting sports at that yeah. point?
4: Yeah. You know, the ROTC had guns. Our Cub Scout and Boy Scouts, we went out and shot .22s. We went camping. We had a little .22 pistols by our side. Nowadays, they can't even have water guns.
0: Well, let's just put this to Alex. Do you, do you think there's a difference in students in days gone by uh, compared to, say, now in your experience? What's uh, or the students coming up through the high schools that are going to be in college that are, uh, that are going to be, you know, in students for concealed carry? What have you noticed?
3: Uh, I actually agree. Uh, that's kind of my generation, the millennial generation, and one okay. thing that's kind of unique about our generation is that we were we were coddled a little bit coming up. Um, it, it's really not the case that. Students on campus these days are are stupid or they're not capable of handling stuff. They're just not expected to handle themselves and to to look after themselves. And that's why I think, you know, having encouraging these students to take up something like concealed carry or take up something like the shooting sports is a really great thing because it teaches them uh, to look after themselves. It teaches them responsibility. It teaches them to, to provide for their own safety. And it forces them to be disciplined and to gain some of these skills that previous generations uh, gained throughout their childhood. Um, I can tell you I've seen students who you know, come into college as freshmen and are, are everything you describe um, as the typical millennial, and they take up the shooting sports, they take up competition shooting, they move into concealed carry, and they, they develop those skills that turn them into what I consider to be you know, a completely responsible and productive adult.
1: Hmm.
4: When, uh, when we were kids even in junior high with our little Schwins. We had scabbards on them, and we had our 22 rifles with scopes with our rifles in them heading out to the woods to shoot, and the county would pull us over every now and then and say, where are you boys heading? And I said, oh, we're going to shoot, and they said, well, don't. Shoot toward the, the, the city and don't shoot toward any houses. Wouldn't check us, wouldn't get our names or anything. Wave to them and let us go. Can you imagine cops doing that nowadays?
0: Well, they also knew you, too, didn't they? Because, you know, really. We, well, okay, so uh, i be... to think how small the town was, because be... if the cops know you, then and they, you sort of grow up with the local police, and Let's, it makes a difference.
4: Let me tell you how schools have changed. When I went to Escambia... Real quick, I parked my F-150 truck in the senior parking lot. The coach came in and called me out of class one day. I had my AR-15, and I had a 410 shotgun in my back window. Windows rolled down, uh, doors unlocked, ammo underneath the seat. And I said, am I in any trouble? He said, no, just roll your windows up next time. And that was it, and he left.
0: Well, this is interesting. Let's talk about this with Alex because you know we that's now. That's the '70s. We, yeah, we live in hold on, Pete. We live in a world of safe spaces, and especially if you're in California, I mean they're 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 going crazy out there. I mean, if you did what what Pete was talking about on a California campus, you'd have the SWAT teams, you'd have counseling, you'd have everybody would be, there'd be the whole place would be on lockdown. You'd have uh, anti-gun courses, you know, immediately required of all students. It would be an entirely different environment. Counselors. Yeah, exactly. So is that is that uh, something that's happening on campuses now are you facing more opposition now do you think for a concealed carry just because of the psychology on campuses alex
3: uh sure yeah and i think that's really detrimental to to the students um and to the environment in general because it's not teaching these kids the life skills that they need to look after themselves once they do leave college um Um, i think colleges are, are sort of trending towards becoming i guess second homes or an extension of high school, which they really shouldn't be. Right. Um, they should really act like a, a community of adults who are there to learn, but they're still definitely adults who are, are living their lives independently.
0: I wonder if the the legislature's taking that into account thinking, well these kids aren't that independent. They can't live for themselves. They're like, you know, kids. They can get health insurance until they're twenty six on their parents. How can we trust them with guns?
3: Right. And the way you fix that is you get max with firearms, honestly. It seems yeah. counterintuitive but that's the only way you develop those skills is to, you know, get involved.
0: No, it makes a lot of sense. And thanks, Pete, for your call. Let's get back to um, what the people that are in this now. I'm just kind of curious because you mentioned the various majors of people that are involved and, and where folks come from, and also the fact that you want really calm, cool people doing this. You don't want the, the crazy provocateurs to sort of ruin it. So, so who, who do you draw from uh, as, as members uh, for Students for Concealed Carry?
3: So I've generally noticed that the the students who are attracted to students for concealed carry and the kind of people who I I guess we would recruit, or the kind of people we associate with, are I guess what you would call deliberative. I've I've since learned that word.
0: Okay. Um, That makes sense. People
3: who are are risk-averse, who are are preparers, who like to have a backup plan and like to be very considerate with their actions and with their words and what they do. Um, That's actually generally the kind of people who are attracted to concealed carry, Um, people who want to have a, a backup plan for when things go wrong. Um, and so we attract those kind of people, we, we foster that environment because we really don't have a whole lot of social uh, latitude to work with on campus. You know, we need to keep our nose clean, we need to, to always be the most professional person in the room um, because otherwise we're giving a, a very bad impression on gun owners.
0: Yeah, it's like the old days when they used to. Uh, the FBI was infiltrating the, the 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 so-called militia groups, and you could always tell the FBI agent they were the ones that wanted to bomb everything, and they were trying to get everybody else to do it. It's so, like, you know, yeah, these people were trying to 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 you know prep for a horrible situation. I talked about that the other day uh, with the whole Waco. Uh, massacre that went on because of the Clinton administration, and it caused a huge rise in gun ownership. And people talk about poison gas being used. Well, they used poison gas there, so our own government was doing it, and that uh, that caused a little controversy, you know, ourselves. So, you, you know, if you're a student on campus, you're kind of at the mercy of administration policies. Yet you're still an adult, you know. And I keep coming back to this conflict of if you're a professional person paying for a service, which is your education, why are you treated like a second-class citizen?
3: Sure, I, could, I couldn't answer that for you. I, yeah. I guess it's what students are asking for, but I don't think it's what students should be given.
0: Yeah, got some ideas for you. Um, have you ever thought about creating uh, a core requirement for Second Amendment studies on campus? You like oh, that? You like that idea? I would like that a lot. Yeah. Create a Second Amendment department. I mean, or make a course, or have you know, see if you can designate a professor to do that. The other thing is, is gun clubs. You know, have have shooting sports make it a a sport that anybody can do, or or a student organization? Do you could you like the NRA started as as a marksmanship organization? Could you expand into you know clubs to get people involved, and they start you know just be, getting in the sport, and then they become advocates for concealed carry?
3: Uh, sure, we do actually have student organizations which are which are shooting focused.
0: Okay.
3: Um, University of Florida, we had a, a University of Florida Action Shooting Team. Okay. Um, there's a, a competition shooting. Uh, oriented uh, organization. Um, they participated in two guns, three guns, scholastic uh, shooting sports, things like that. Um, UCF had the UCF Gun Club, which is more of a, a general gun owner's organization, hmm. um, and that's where we pulled a lot of our, our people from for students for Castillo carry. So, yeah, actually, I completely agree with you. Uh, gun-oriented student organizations are a great place for us to draw support from and also just a good thing for the campus community to have.
0: Interesting. And you've got, uh, so the statute you're trying to overturn is 790.06, that's the one that doesn't allow you to do anything?
3: So 790.06 is the the general section that concerns concealed weapons licenses. What we're trying to get rid of specifically is 790.06, subsection 12, sub subsection A, item 13, which is the the line that specifically prohibits people with concealed weapons licenses from carrying. That
0: come into effect, do you remember? Or have you, uh, been the,
3: it must have been shortly after after we switched to a uh, license-based
0: carry system. So that's back uh, in the sure. 80s, like 87, 88, I think it was, when, when Florida became shell issue?
3: Yeah, late 80s, early 90s.
0: So how did that evolve then? So if you became, when the state became shell issue, did students say, well, yeah, I want to carry too, how come you can't prevent us? Was it, was it a fairly quick thing or did it develop after the, the, the tragedies of the shootings?
3: Um, I think the the popular sport board is probably something that's been uh, a relatively recent phenomenon. Yeah. Um, I can't tell you what students during the nineties were were talking about. Because quite honestly, that wasn't <laughs> that wasn't something I was plugged into. I was busy watching cartoons.
0: Yeah, you're a kid. Huh? Yeah, so we're getting some depth of experience there, but I'll tell you, Second Amendment courses, get Second Amendment, find out the conservative professors, have them uh, have an institute like Second Amendment, you know, philosophy. That's something I'm very into because the whole psychology of guns fascinates me, not just the guns themselves, but but the, the people that say that I don't want a gun and you can't have one either. You know, and I don't want one, a gun, and you can't carry one on campus. And uh, I don't, because I don't want one, you can't have one. You know, they don't say that about much of anything else uh, as much as you do with the gun. So the whole idea of people having responsibility for themselves, that kind of power, that kind of, uh, you know, life-changing protection. I got a question for you. I was just thinking, the police on campus, um, are they, do they think of, if everybody was armed, do they think their job's going to be more difficult? Do they think of, of losing their job security if students can protect themselves? What are your relationship with campus police?
3: police? I think they're worried about losing their job security. Um, we've had campus police, uh, police give their opinion on it, and they're generally opposed to it. I think it comes from a place of liability. They're worried about their officers having to respond to, let's say, an active shooter okay. and misidentifying a concealed carrier as the shooter.
0: Oh, yeah. How do you make sure you don't uh, get into that trouble?
3: Yeah. Um, but the officers I've spoken to personally and, and let's say off the record, um, they're generally in favor of of campus carry and concealed carry in general. Um, as you can imagine, officers have a lot of experience with campus carry and er, sorry, with uh, concealed carry, and they're generally in favor of, of the individual protecting themselves. They know that it takes minutes for them to get to a, to get to a scene and right. they know what happens during those minutes.
0: I was just reminded of the Ohio terrorist attacks. i say tell you what, we've got a caller on the line. Brad, we're going to get to you. Let's take our last break right now. That way I can give Brad more time uh, to talk, and we can talk about this Ohio situation where a police officer was right on scene at the exact right time and, uh, and took care of it. But if they weren't on scene, that tragedy could have been a whole lot worse. So it's 846. My um, guest, Alex Stewart, we will be right back. In the morning my guest is Alex Stewart uh, Florida State Director of students for concealed carry and Brad you're on the line go ahead
3: yeah I was uh, wondering what's the uh, penalty for carrying concealed on campus is it a felony and what are the what are the uh, penalties as far as uh, jail time or, or dollars and cents also would he would they possibly be able to attack this uh, by reducing that penalty in Congress to say a misdemeanor if it is a felony and uh, getting it down to where it's just a misdemeanor to carry on campus. I uh, just it's like no answer.
0: Great question. Yeah, Alex? Uh,
3: that is a very good question. Uh, for people who are not licensed uh, to carry concealed weapons, carrying on a college campus is, I, if I recall correctly, a third-degree felony. So it is a felony charge. For people who are licensed to carry, who, who carry in deference to campus carry being prohibited right now, um, I believe it is a misdemeanor charge right now. But that doesn't... Really help you out of the water because it is that is still a form of crime, um, and that can, depending on how the court works out, uh, result in you, you losing some of your privileges and losing your license.
0: Well, that's something. There thinking.
3: is a bill, there's a bill going through the state legislature right now, um, which will reduce the penalty uh, for CWFL holders carrying on campus down to a non criminal violation of 25 dollars uh, fine. So exactly what you're talking about is actually already already in the works.
0: What's the bill number on that one?
3: The uh, no. bill number on that one is Senate Bill 646.
0: Because people will call on it. They're listening right now. And so uh, so that's good. Senate Bill 646 reduces the penalty for carrying concealed uh, to $25. That's great.
3: Uh, yes, a non-criminal violation. Now, how does that work? Specifically on campus, what would an officer do? Would he ask you to leave? I don't know. Hmm.
0: But you have to have a concealed carry permit for that to be in effect, right?
3: Correct. This would only apply to uh, license holders.
0: Yeah, this is so weird because the Constitution says that the government cannot infringe on your right to carry. The state does infringe on your right to carry. Uh, You can lose your right to own guns if you're convicted of a felony, and now we can reduce this to a $25 fine. What a mess. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Let's go to sort of this Ohio situation. Do you remember that from a few months ago? Um, yeah, I do.
3: That was where the gentleman drove a car and there were a crowd of people and then began stabbing people.
0: He started with a knife and then he drove, I think it was, or maybe he was driving first, then he attacked people with a knife. But, you know, fortunately there was a campus police there. But do you, is that an example of where concealed carry would, campus carry would have, you know, drastically changed the situation?
3: Uh, it could have. It's, it's a little bit different from what we typically talk about when we're talking about campus shooting because we're usually talking about, uh, like we were talking earlier, uh, school the school shooter profile. Uh-huh. Uh, this is more of a, I guess, an act of terror, um, and the the playbook there is a little bit different, because usually the terrorist is is dead set on on killing as many people as possible, including law enforcement. Right. Um, it's also a little bit different, because it happened outside of buildings, which you wouldn't think would be as important as it is. Um, buildings, especially on college campuses, are are kind of maze-like, and so response from external law enforcement can can be delayed even more. Um, It was kind of fortunate that it happened outside of a building because that's a much quicker response time uh, for law enforcement. And as I understand it, it just so happens to be that the law enforcement officer was nearby.
0: Yeah. if you look at a college campus, yeah, you're right. It's a maze of buildings. There's a lot of walkways. Vehicles don't have access to a lot of it. You know, so the police, when they're patrolling, if, especially if they're patrolling in vehicles, they need to be out walking around, which slows them down. So you've got you know, potentially uh, a much you know, more dangerous situation simply because it's not as accessible. So having students carrying would, would greatly facilitate, I would think, the safety there. And, then, and no one's thinking, the legislature's not even taking this into account.
3: Sure, yeah, I, oh. I agree with you. Usually when we speak to them, we'll, we'll be given 60 seconds maximum to, to speak our case, and it's, it's hard to give senators who normally don't spend six seconds a year <laughs> thinking practically about about these issues the, the walkthrough and the rundown of, of how we would practically and tactically approach these kinds of situations.
0: What do they say to you when you, when you go into their offices and when you're, when you're lobbying or when you're testifying? What kind of questions do you get?
3: Yeah. What what will happen with suicidal students? You know, how 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 will quote unquote increasing the number of guns on campus affect students who are suicidal? Um, what, what will we have to pay for this? What will be the cost to universities? Um and we can get into that if you're interested. But
0: Well I'm just thinking that. if someone's suicidal, they're not worrying about the law anyway. They've already made a, a horrible decision in their own life. They need they need counseling, they need help. But that's that's got nothing to do with students. With uh, you know law-abiding, upfront, non-risk-averse, you know, or risk-averse, you know, professional students caring just for for their personal safety and the safety of others. That's a totally different and argument. And
3: more practically, campus carry has nothing to do with the general availability of firearms on yeah. or off campus, or whether or not suicidal students have access to them. Um, if a if a suicidal student wants to have a firearm in their dorm room, or in their vehicle, or in their condo off campus, they're going to have it whether or not campus carry is prohibited. Yeah. Uh, Carry only has to do with license holders carrying, you know, out and about to class, and that's usually not what people commit
0: suicide. Yeah, and Pete was carrying in high school. (laughs) We just heard from him. So, you know, people are willing to break the law. You almost have to break the law to save your life, uh, at which point. Now, what would happen if on a campus, uh, concealed carry, if someone was carrying concealed, uh, they were carrying it unlawfully according to state law, they saved lives, used it in self-defense, what would they be charged with?
3: Uh, I think it's almost certain that the prosecutor would drop that case. Okay. Um, it, it gets very muddy with uh, Florida's uh, self-defense laws. I believe in this case would be Florida State Statute Chapters 776. Okay. Um those, those generally get you out of most violations, assuming you're violating the law specifically to save your life and the life of someone else. Interesting. Um, there may be some residual crimes that you could theoretically be charged with, um, but I don't think the prosecutor would pursue that case.
0: Yeah, Is that Florida-specific? Because I know in liberal states they would go after you.
3: Yeah, that is, that is Florida-specific.
0: Yeah, interesting. i got one big question for you. But before you do, can you give your website and any other contact information? Because we only have a couple minutes left.
3: Uh, sure. So if you're interested in getting involved, you go to concealedcampus.org. That's our national site. And you can find your, your local state site there. Um, if you're interested in uh, Florida specifically, the best place to stay up to date with what we're doing is on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash florida.sbc forward slash florida.sbc that's our state site.
0: Yeah, can better get those letters again. It's a little hard on this connection. SBC?
3: Uh, SBC, Students for Concealed Caring, the abbreviation thereof.
0: Okay, got it. All right. So here's my other, my last question for you, I think, what well, I don't have time for. The Constitutional Revision Commission. Do you know about this? Are you looking into any constitutional changes? Uh, do you have anybody on the board, anybody appointed that will help you out? Um, do you know about what's going on with that? Uh, are you anything? speaking at
3: the state level? The state yeah,
0: state level, yeah. Uh,
3: we're not involved with that at all. We haven't had any, any contact with them. Oh, you should. We should, I agree.
0: I don't know how sure. to, you know, I don't know how to do it, but I'm thinking that if because the constitution, the Florida constitution's interesting. Uh the second amendment is is the second amendment, but in other words it says, you know, the second amendment rights shall not be infringed, but if the law says that the law change we can infringe on the way that you carry. Have you have you looked at that at all the, the actual Florida text? Uh
3: I have at the uh gun rights provided by the Florida constitution, yes.
0: Okay. Interesting. Well, I hope you can get some impact on that. And the other thing that you told me about that was interesting in our last little bit here. Uh, you're, you're separated from Open Carry, Florida Open Carry, versus Students for Concealed Carry. Can you tell me how you guys have have separate roles in, in the the gun debate?
3: Sure. So Florida Open Carry is, I guess, a larger organization. It's usually composed of people who are who are since moved on from college in the general population. Okay. Um, their their movement concerns open carry of firearms in in general public. Um, so allow, allowing people with concealed weapons licenses to carry their guns in in view of other people. Um, our organization is, I guess, a sister organization. Um, we, we certainly fraternize with them. Yeah,
0: got left, so we have about 30 seconds left, so we want to do really a, tied. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Um, and, and we're specifically arguing for license holders to carry concealed on college campuses. Okay. So they're not mutually exclusive in any way, shape, or form, but we like to keep them separate just for people who might buy into one of them but not the other.
0: Interesting. Okay, Alex, we've got just a few seconds left. Thanks so much for coming on. I hope folks will support this organization and wish you luck with the the way it was. March 13th of 2017. Uh, lots changed. Again, lots changed since then. But that was a great, uh, uh, great chat we had. And I'm going to contact uh, Florida uh, students for a concealed carry. I'm just be curious what's going on. But really, um, the biggest thing that we need to change is our Florida Constitution, which says that 18 to 21 year olds can't own handguns, but they can own rifles, which is stupid. You know, again, it's another unconstitutional limitation. Anything that, that, uh, that limits the ability to own and carry or keep and bear arms is, is blatantly unconstitutional because all rights are absolute. Uh, and so this is, you know, people say, well, what about uh, you can't do this, you can't do that. So well, you're talking about exercising. You know, you're talking about the use of firearms. The use of firearms is completely different than the right. All of our rights are designed to stop prior restraint. They're designed, they're designed to stop the government from doing something to you before you've even had a chance to exercise your right. And so that's why all rights are absolute. So there's an absolute prohibition on the government doing anything to stop you from keeping and bearing arms. Now, if you want to use firearms, there are legal and illegal uses, and those come under statutory law. However, statutory law is subordinate. It is below constitutional law. So the right, the right of the people, that's us, to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Okay? In other words, the government cannot touch your right, which is absolute, to keep and carry firearms. Okay, that's all we're talking about. Now, when you get into the area of use, uh, there are legal uses, self-defense, and there are illegal uses, carjacking. So that's why use is not an absolute right. In fact, use is not a right at all. You can do it, because, but but there are legal, of course, you can you can exercise, you know, your firearms uh, ability uh, in ways that are both legal and ways that are illegal. And this is this is why it's not a right. So once you understand that, it makes a lot more sense. So we protect the right to keep and bear arms. Of anything you want to carry, of anything you want to own, of, uh, you know, but you, we're not talking about use. Use comes under an entirely different category. Once you separate the right to keep them bear from the use of firearms in statutory law, it all makes sense. Anyway, that was a fun chat we had. Um, so let's uh, see if we can find some uh, out here. Uh, more news, more different things to do. I've got a couple more articles. We'll see how it goes. I probably won't go the full hour. Uh, Unless I get really inspired or somebody calls or who knows, but uh, let's get you some, let's get into our our more recent stories um, of the day of our latest scandals and see what's up. One of my favorite sources is Zero Hedge. And the, the author is Tyler Durden, which is the character from Fight Club. Uh, and they have Brad Pitt, a little picture of Brad Pitt as the profile picture from Fight Club. But I don't know who does it. but I don't know where it comes from. I just know that it's really good. And so what's going on right now is, some, uh, is Ireland seems to be the latest front for, for leftist Marxist takeovers. And the headline in this one is, and this is from, uh, actually it's, an, it's author, oh, there we go. So it's an article authored by uh, Jonathan Turley, who's a constitutional lawyer um, in Washington. Is it George Mason or George Washington? I always get those two. Anyway, George something University is where uh, Jonathan Turley is, and he's the, the the latest, greatest. He and Dershowitz and a couple of others will really dominate constitutional thought. Uh, anyway, so this article, so it's not by Tyler Durden, it's by Jonathan Turley. Uh, and again, this was written Tuesday, June 20th, so a couple of days ago. So it's pretty recent stuff. And the question he asks is, we, well, excuse me, the statement he makes is we are restricting freedom for the common good. I want to say that again. Well, And this isn't Jonathan Trilley talking. This is, this is a quote from the Irish Green Party calling for limiting free speech. They say we are restricting freedom for the common good. Now, you know on this show that we don't believe in, in the, uh, the greater good or the public good or any of those things. The only thing we believe in is individual rights and, and individual uh, responsibilities and individual uh, property and individuals. Because the whole government, the whole system is based on individuals. There is no common good. Because whoever wants the common good wants to control the common good, wants to control people, and it usually ends up benefiting them and controlling everybody else. So that's why you don't worry about common good. The public good, same thing. Or in the public interest, the same thing. The only only way that you can determine the public interest is what the, the public decides for themselves individually. So you can look at the collective effect of individual decisions. That's what the public good is. Because that's what the public has decided is good. You know, It's not somebody's individual viewpoint. So you know, so get rid of the social engineers, get rid of the controllers, get rid of the politicians, get rid of all the people that, that want to uh, have control. And as their excuse, they say, well, we're doing this for you. No, they're not. They're doing it for them because they want control because control makes them feel better, more powerful. And you know, I love the attitude. It's like, well, if you only do what I say, everything will be fine. No, it'll be fine for you. It won't be fine for me because I don't want to do everything you say. As a free-thinking individual, but the Irish Marxists have got it in their heads that they can restrict for the common good, and that's why they say that uh, um, the courts talk about reasonable restrictions and strict scrutiny and uh, you know compelling state interest. That's all stuff they made up. It's not in the constitution. That's not legal. They do it anyway. In other words, they're justifying something they can't do with something that sounds reasonable. Reasonable restrictions. Well, they're, they're still restrictions you know the focus on is reasonable well it's okay for us to restrict it because we're doing it reasonably no it's not okay for you to restrict anything in a right because all rights are absolute just went through that and so it's just crazy the way that they uh uh that they keep doing this this nonsense but they keep doing it and we have to stop them all right so the article we are restricting freedom for the common good jonathan turley says the irish green party had a very distracting ad here on the it's, it's uh I'm going to move my stuff over a little bit here so I can, no, I can't do it. So I'm stuck with it. It's <laughs> of these moving ads, this is taking me away from my reading. It says, um, the, he says, the Irish Green Party followed many on the left around the world, including our own Democrat Party, this week, and came out for censorship and speech controls. Indeed, the party went full Orwellian, as its chairwoman, Pauline O'Reilly, oh, Pauline O'Reilly, sure, she's Irish, called for restricting freedom to protect it. That's like, uh, you know, that's like, you know, when the Democrats always talk about, uh, you know, our democracy, we've got to save our democracy. And how do they want to save it? By bringing in a Marxist coup, <laughs> taking over our government, taking away all our freedoms. But it's for democracy. Well, whose? I guess theirs. Anyway, O'Reilly's comments are part of the introduction of the criminal justice incitement to violence. Oh, wait a minute. Let me see if this straight. O'Reilly's comments are part of the introduction of the criminal justice uh, bill, all right, and it says criminal justice. Then it says incitement to violence or hatred, and hate offenses bill. So, their criminal justice, incitement to violence or hatred, and hate offenses bill. It says we previously, says we previously discussed this measure, uh, this massive assault on free speech. So let's go. So it looks like the, Charlie's already already dealt with it, but I don't remember the first article. So let's see what he says. So the legislation that would criminalize. Incitement to violence or hatred against people with protected characteristics. So let's talk, who's protected? Well, the, the folks on the left. Okay, consider themselves protected. So, so uh, you know, my, minorities of color, um, certain religious groups, uh, LGBTQ, ABC, PMS, you know, any group that the left wants, uh, uh, that uses to take away freedoms, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, all those folks, they'd be protected. And you can't incite to violence or hatred. See, hatred is the buzzword. Now, all someone has to do is accuse you. Remember we are talking about accusations earlier in the show. Well, all someone has to do is accuse you of hatred, and then you become a person of hatred. <laughs> okay, I'm not a person of hatred. Just because someone says I hate doesn't mean I hate. Uh, and even if I did hate, that's not a crime. You know, the crimes are violence. So the person accusing someone else of hate probably has the most hate and probably has either caused or incited the most violence. So, again, this becomes a projection crime. You know, you project onto somebody else what you're doing yourself. 'Cause you either can't accept it or you don't want the blame. Anyway, most people don't want the blame. And so that's the thing. So this is a this is an act that would criminalize any criticism of protected groups. So but they can criticize you. You know, a black person can call me a white supremacist or a white nationalist or have white privilege, which to me are all racist terms. Especially said by a, a minority person or a non white person. And I said, like I said, you know, the next person that calls me, you know, white supremacist or it says white privilege, I said that's like the N word. That's like calling you the N-word. The same thing. Don't call me honky either. <laughs> Unless you're white. In which case it's okay. Because we'd be fellow honkies at that point. Anyway, so, so the law is against basically saying anything against a group that wants to oppress you. Then it says, as well as condoning, denying, or grossly trivializing genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, uh, and crimes against peace. What's a crime against peace? So in other words, if you, it's a hate crime to say that some... Uh, genocide, war crime. Well, what, what if they say that uh, trans rights are human rights? And you say, no, they're not. There are no trans. You know, there are, I mean, human rights are, are group rights. So what they really are is individual rights. But group rights are defined by government, and they're not rights at all. Human rights, like the UN Charter of Human Rights, saying what all humans have, that's not a right because the rights are a prohibition from government acting. I don't know anything in the, uh, the UN Charter of Human Rights that prohibits any government from acting anywhere. They basically tell you what you can have. You're entitled to this. You're entitled to that. You're entitled to something else. Well, that's not what rights are. Rights are prohibition, prohibitions on government from taking away something from you. They don't give you anything. You can get that on your own. But this is a fascinating um, idea. That uh, I guess if you're a Holocaust denier, you know, then they can be accused of uh, of a hate crime, which was left as all the time. Or uh, here's here's the denier. So what if I said? Which is true. The 2020 election was stolen by the Democrats and willing Republicans as all part of the deep state. And there's massive fraud and there's, there's tons of evidence to prove it.
1: <gasps>
0: Would I be inciting violence and a hate crime? Well, you support January 6th. You support a violent overthrow of the government. <laughs> you know, that's what they say. And then really, OK, so how exactly were they going to overthrow the government? And that's the next question. But anyway, we'll get onto that later. Article says limiting free speech has become an article of faith for many on the left. I have written about my distress uh, as someone who grew up in a liberal, politically active Democrat family in Chicago. Interesting, Jonathan, Charlie. In watching the abandonment of free speech values by the party, Democrat leaders now uniformly call for censorship and speech regulations. I can't say president, but let's just say insurrectionist Biden even charged that companies who refused to censor opposing views on social media were, quote, killing people. Really? Others have denounced you know, free speech as a white man's obsession. He says the anti-free speech movement has become openly Orwellian in claiming to protect freedom by limiting freedom. It also employs using terms like disinformation, misinformation, and malinformation, hold on, one's new to me, to obscure their effort to silence those with opposing views. How about those who are telling the truth, okay? Rather than use censorship, they refer to content moderation or moderating content. Or they'll say, this, uh, we're, we're just uh, meeting our community standards. Uh, or they saying, we, we can't allow what you said because it's, it's misinformation. Well, the fact that they're saying it's misinformation is misinformation. They're lying. Okay? And it's not their point anyway to say that because they don't have a virtue monopoly on truth. Anyway, Jonathan says, says, that effort was on full display this week in Ireland with this anti-free speech legislation. Speaking before the Irish Senate, uh, which is the Seanad? S-E-A-N-A-D, I guess S-E-A-N-Sean, Sean, as in Sean Connery, the Seanad. Well, oh, I was speaking before the Seanad this week. Oh, the, the, I'm sorry, that's Scottish. Irish. Oh, speaking for the Seanad this week. Green Party Chairwoman Pauline O'Reilly declared, when one thinks about it, all law and all legislation is about the restriction of freedom. Oh, isn't that interesting? <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a fascinating sense, all right? So speaking before the Irish Senate uh, this week, Green Party Chairwoman Pauline O'Reilly declared, when one thinks about it, all law and all legislation is about the restriction of freedom. No, actually, it's just the opposite. All law and legislation is, is about the restriction of government. <laughs> you know? um, and uh, you're not restricting freedom. What you're doing is restricting illegal behavior, and there's a difference. Okay, so restriction of freedom is not what you want to do. You want the government's in charge of preserving freedom and preserving individual rights. Now, does that mean that uh, anybody can do anything they want? No, that's anarchy. Does that mean the government can have total control? No, that's tyranny. So somewhere closer to the anarchy side is a place where there are just enough laws to protect life, liberty and property. That's it. That's what the government's charged with doing. So all laws are about protecting life, liberty and property. So laws are, about, are not about restricting freedom. They're about protecting individuals and individual rights. That's what all law and all legislation is about. Unless you're totalitarian, in which case you see all laws as a restriction of freedom. So that's your rationalization for tyranny. Well, all laws are about restricting freedom. Therefore, it's okay to, to impose tyranny because all laws are that way. That's like if all laws had the death penalty. Would the death penalty be okay? In fact, if the death penalty for mass murder was the same as the death penalty for jaywalking, would that be okay? Well, all laws, you know, ultimately lead to capital punishment. <laughs> no, they don't. It's a false argument. Anyway, she says this is exactly what we are doing here. We are restricting freedom, but we are doing it for the common good. See, never you, gotta, you, you can never take the common good or the public good or the public interest or, you know, public health or any of that kind of stuff if it restricts your individual freedoms. None of that makes sense. So there is no common good. There is no public interest. There is no... Uh, um, you know, a public health. Yeah, you can as long as you're controlling a disease and not controlling people. If you're controlling a disease and sick people. Yeah, then you can do some public health measures. I understand. That. But can you quarantine healthy people? No. Can you take away anybody's rights? No. Well, that might spread the disease faster. Well, maybe yes, maybe no. You don't know. Actually, covid would have been stopped with freedom. It's the lack of freedom that caused covid to be around and kill over a million people, because had they had the freedom, they would have had the freedom of information, what these people call hate speech. Or, or moderating speech. So if freedom had actually ruled during COVID, which it should have, COVID would have been done in about eight weeks. But because freedom was taken away by force, by force of guns, then COVID's still with us. It's that simple. So she's completely wrong when she says, "When well, one thinks about it all law and all legislation is about restriction of freedom. No, all law and all legislation is about protecting life, liberty, and property. That's what it's all about. It says so in the Constitution. Anyway, this is, you know, and there we go. So then she says, we are restricting freedom, but we're doing it for the common good. So in other words, her common good is a world which freedom is restricted. That's what she thinks of as good. See, I think of that as tyranny. See, that's the difference. Tyranny is when freedom is restricted, not the common good. Maybe her good, maybe her planned society, maybe her planned life where everybody does exactly what she says. Sounds like Gretchen Whitmer in, in Michigan the dictator during the COVID thing. Do what I say. I know what's in your best interest. Huh. No, you don't. Anyway, it says it is the same message of New York Democrats calling for limiting speech as a way of protecting democracy. Yes, it is a fight. So, so there they do it for the public good. Here it's protecting democracy. Well, what is democracy? Democracy is a situation where one over half of the vote decides everything, where everybody gets a chance to vote. Okay, well, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is that people can be bought. People are lazy. Uh, if you have a pure democracy, all you need is corrupt people to convince people to vote for more stuff for them at the expense of other people and the society collapses. So democracy is a terrible system. Churchill said it's the worst system except for everything else. No, it's not. It's not better than a republic. A republic is the ideal system. A republic is the best system of government because it has a constitution, limited government, a separation of powers, declarations of, of individual rights, and none of this other crap. And uh, that's how it works. That's why republics are better than democracies. Anyway, this is indeed former Clinton Labor Secretary Robert Reich. How Rush Limbaugh used to say it? Reich. Looks like it's spelled Reich as in Third Reich, as in Germany. Anyway, Labor Secretary Robert Reich has declared free speech is tyranny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's Orwellian. Remember Orwell? Remember the three things he said? Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. Uh, war is peace. Yeah. So, so Robert Reich is saying, speech is tyranny. Free speech is tyranny. No. <laughs> the lack of free speech is tyranny. <laughs> you know, they got the all backwards. Anyway, then he says, O'Reilly assured citizens that giving up freedom was nothing new or threatening. Really? Throughout our Constitution, one can see that while one has rights, they are restricted for the common good. Everything needs to be balanced. No, that's tyranny. We prove that in our Australian Bill of Rights. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you have a Constitution... Uh, that takes rights away, then it's, 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 it's an anti-Constitution. See, a Constitution takes away powers of government, tells government what it can and cannot do. It, it delegates very specific powers to government um, beyond which they cannot go. That's what a Constitution is. Constitutions are for government. Laws are for people. That's why you don't, you don't make a Constitution full of laws. In fact, the Constitution shouldn't have any laws because all it is is a restriction on government. It's the operating manual. This is what you can't do. Everybody knows, uh, anybody who who flies airplanes knows that uh, there's a section on limitations, okay? That's like the constitution for airplanes, all right? So in other words, you cannot go too fast. You cannot go too high. You cannot uh, turn too sharply. You cannot too, pull too many Gs. You cannot put too much weight. You can't put too much weight, you know, out of the center of gravity. Um, you can't, uh, yeah, those are it. Those are limitations, okay? So if you stay within the limitations, you cannot fly outside the envelope, okay? Uh, again, the big one, don't pull too many Gs. You know, don't overload. Uh, don't try and fly without fuel because <laughs> you're not going to get very far. You know, and as long as you follow the, the, the limitations, an airplane's constitution, it should hold together and get you where you're going. Okay. Well, same thing with the government. If a government follows its constitution, it will be a good and proper republic. And people will have individual freedoms because people are free to do um, whatever they want, as long as they're not going to break laws that affect other people. And that's basically what laws are. Laws are to protect life, liberty, and property from other people taking away your life, liberty, and property. And government and constitutions are there to protect government from taking away your life, liberty, and property. So it's actually pretty simple when you think about it. This isn't that complicated a process. Staying around longer than I thought I would. (laughs) This is kind of cool. All right. So, but I want to get through this article because it's fascinating. And uh, Jonathan, I wonder if I can get him on the show. Wouldn't that be great? So, so they say, so Democrats think free speech is tyranny. Oh, here's the, I love this. Through our Constitution, see, this is right out of the UN Declaration of Human Rights, that every right has a responsibility, that all rights are limited. It's BS. It's total BS, right? It's not true. Not if you believe in a republic and if you believe in individual rights being absolute, which they are. If a right is not absolute, then, the gov- then it becomes a government privilege. Anytime a government limits a right in any way, then it ceases to be a right. It becomes a government privilege. So, again, there's a separation between rights and the actions people take, which are governed by statutory law, which is below the Constitution and therefore below rights. Laws are below rights. Rights are supreme over laws. That's the whole point. That's why gun control is unconstitutional, because the Constitution says that the government can't make a law that touches your absolute right to keep and bear arms, to own and carry firearms. Can't do it. So any law that does that is automatically unconstitutional, which is all gun control, which comes under prior restraint. Limiting your magazine capacity, making you get a permit, making you have a a, a license, limiting the length of the barrel, you know, doing all these different kinds of things, limiting where you can carry, who can carry, how old, whatever is going on. Once you're an adult, you know, it's done. All these different restrictions are all unconstitutional because they are prior restraint. They are restraining, they are touching, they are infringing upon your right, which is absolute, to own and carry firearms. Now, once you decide to use firearms, that's a different story because now you're in statutory law. Now you're in use, and use is not covered by rights. So in other words, the right is to protect the government from stopping you before you exercise it. Use, statutory law, is designed to protect other people from your misuse of activities, and not rights, but misuse of whatever you're exercising, whatever you're doing. So if you misuse guns, if you use guns illegally, that comes under statutory law. Well, that's got nothing to do with rights, they're completely separate things. Understanding that is going to take a bit. You've got to kind of work through a process, but that's how it works. All right. So, anyway, everything needs to be balanced. Balanced? How? What are they balancing? There's no balance. There is a restriction on government. Their rights are absolute. And people's, uh, the, the most important thing government does is, excuse me, protect life, liberty, and property. That's not a balance. That's an absolute. There's no balance here. These are absolutes. Rights are absolutes. So, everything does not need to be balanced. She's wrong, of course. And there is no protection of rights for the common good. Look at COVID. COVID restricted rights like crazy. And what happened? COVID lasted around for three years, caused millions of deaths worldwide, and uh, brought, brought about horrible, quote, vaccines, made people incredibly rich off the deaths of others, totally changed our hospital system, and all because of a lack of freedom. So the common good is not... to take away away rights, the common good is actually to make sure the rights are maintained. The common good, again, I've said this before, the cure for COVID was free speech. If we had free speech, we had information on ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, COVID would have been done in about eight weeks because we didn't have free speech. We didn't have our rights. It's the lack of rights that kill people, not the rights themselves. So this is a contradiction. So the idea that you can take away rights for the common good is absurd. You actually have to promote rights for the common good make sure rights are are promoted for the common good, protect rights for the common good, teach people what their rights are so they can exercise them. And if in the process of exercising a right, they go beyond the right into use, and that use is illegal under statutory law, then you got a problem. In other words, you have an absolute right to free speech. The government cannot stop you from speaking. However, once you have spoken, now we're not talking rights anymore, we're talking use. We're talking exercise, and that's a different thing. So you have the right to speak. The government cannot stop you from speaking in advance. They cannot take your printing press, cannot take your computer, cannot take your microphone, cannot take anything away from you. But once you take action, everything changes. Once you take an action, that action either will be a legal action or an illegal action. So the right is absolute before the action. See, that's the difference. So you protect the right before you do anything. So the government cannot do anything before you act. Once you act, now you're in a different world. If you act with a firearm, legal or illegal. If you act with free speech, did you yell fire in a crowded theater? Well, that could be legal if it's a fire, you know, or or illegal and and negligent and possibly causing uh, manslaughter. A bunch of people run over and kill each other because you yelled fire in a crowded theater and there wasn't a fire. So it all depends on on the action. And that's what the courts are for and the judges and the laws and everything like that. And the juries, juries especially. So once you take action, you, 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 once you're exercising a right, that right then drops down to statutory law, and the actions that you take can be judged differently than the right itself. Once you separate the right, the government cannot touch from the action that you take, which can be a legal or illegal action. That's where all the difference is, and that's how I explain it. Then Jonathan Charlie says, what is particularly chilling is how low... The threshold is for denying free speech, according to O'Reilly, not Bill O'Reilly. This is the O'Reilly of the Green Party of Ireland, right? He says it now appears that deep discomfort is enough. In other words, if you offend someone, you can take away the free speech rights. Well, if that was the case. I'd take away the free speech rights of the Democrats because they offend me. Sorry, you guys can't speak anymore. Go away. Shut up. I'm offended by your lack of, of understanding of the Constitution, by your incredible staggering ignorance, by your dangerous Marxist political propaganda, and lies. I'm deeply offended by that. So they should shut up, right? According to this law, this would be for the common good. Actually, the common good would be the fact that all the Democrats shut up. That would be for the common good, now that I think about it. Would I impose that? No, because everybody has a right to free speech. Once you've said what you've said, yeah, now we can go after you. And I do. All right, so I would not stop anybody's right to free speech. However, once they say stuff, it's open to criticism. That, again, rights versus actions. You have the absolute right and that right guarantees that you can act. However, if you act in a way that breaks a law that, uh, and of course we're assuming the laws are, are just as well. So that, that's another part of it too. Again, this is complicated. So Charlie says, here's a quote. If a person's views on another person's I- identities makes their, makes their life unsafe and insecure, insecure, and causes them such deep discomfort, discomfort that they cannot live in peace. Our job as legislators is to restrict those freedoms for the common good. Look how dangerous this is. Maybe I'll spend the hour in this article. This article is so fascinating. If a person views on another person, people's identities, so in other words, if a Hispanic person calls me a white supremacist, okay, and I, I feel unsafe, then I should be able to take them and throw their ass in jail. See, what they're doing is they're, you know, well, but uh, no, Greg, you can't because you're not a protected minority. This only applies to protected people. This doesn't apply to everybody. See, that's the catch, right? This is what, you know what's coming. That's the catch that's coming. This only applies to those who are protected. In other words, leftist political identity groups. That's who can be offended by what they consider conservative right wing uh, other groups. So this is only protecting the leftist population. This isn't protecting everybody. There's, you know, I guess that's, is that their balance? Anyway, it says, if a person's views on other people's identities. All right, so so trans person says, I'm trans, and trans rights are human rights. I say, well, quite frankly, you're the same sex you were when you were born. You were either XX or XY, and all you've had is cosmetic and elective surgery and drugs. Well, that doesn't make you a civil rights group. It doesn't make you a group at all. It makes you an individual who's had cosmetic surgery and, uh, cosmetic and elective surgery and drugs. Now, in Ireland, that would throw me in jail. Because I threaten that person's identity, even though their identity to me is false. And again, I'm not going to stop adults from having elective surgery and drugs. If they want to do that, that's fine. But it's not a civil rights group any more than people that get nose jobs are a civil rights group or boob jobs. You know, tummy tucks. You know, does that make you a civil rights group? No. The difference uh, of doing it with with your sex organs doesn't make you a civil rights group either. This is why this is so fascinating. In other words, can you sue somebody for firing you on the job because you had elective surgery on your sex parts? That's laughable when phrased that way, isn't it? Anyway, so let's say a person views on identity makes their lives unsafe and insecure and cause them such deep discomfort. Oh, I really feel discomfort when someone calls me a white nationalist or a white supremacist or has white privilege because to me that's like the N-word. Deep discomfort. So anybody that calls me that, like Warren used to do, maybe I can throw their ass in jail. I cannot live in peace if people are calling me you know, whitey or honky. I'm sorry, you can't do it. Right? It's like the N word. And it says our jobs as a legislator is to restrict those freedoms for the common good. And as I said before, you cannot restrict any freedom for the common good because the common good is freedom. Let me say that again. I just I, like I just thought that up. You cannot restrict freedom for the common because the common good is always freedom. Moving on. Jonathan Turley says, what is interesting is that O'Reilly admits that there is nothing new about hateful views, but it is time to clear out such voices. Oh, my. Quote, social media has fueled hatred, but it has also put on display for all of us the dirty, filthy underbelly of hatred in Irish society. That hatred has always existed. Well, yeah, but you can't legislate against it. What do you legislate against how somebody feels? You can't do it. People can feel whatever they want. You can pass all the laws you want against how somebody feels. All you can do is victimize them with made-up policies which can't change how somebody feels. That's up to them. But how, they, how someone feels is irrelevant. If someone hates me, that's their problem, not mine. If, if someone's offended by what I say, that's their problem. They're the one who's offended, not me. I'm not offended by what I say. If I was, I wouldn't say it. <laughs> this is kind of funny. Article says the Irish legislation is likely to be replicated around the world if the free speech community cannot hold the line against the anti-free speech movement. I do that. Guys, I do that. I've got law. I've got bills for everything. we have a free speech bill? I don't know if we do yet. I'm not the right one. Anyway, it says it is part of the unrelenting movement in Europe, particularly by the European Union, which is definitely anti-freedom, to roadblock Western free speech values that once defined countries. Western free speech values. Okay, so remember what uh, Dr. De- Peter Price said before he died. Dr. Peter Pry said that the supremacy that they're talking about, white supremacy, is not white people ruling over everybody else. It's the supremacy of the ideas of white people ruling over everybody else, particularly the ideas of freedom and a republic, of individual rights, of life, liberty, and property. What they're saying is that is white supremacy. Because they said so. Free speech is tyranny, right? So in other words, freedom is tyranny. Freedom is a value of white people in Europe, particularly British men, because British men who came to this country brought us freedom. I mean, did anybody else? Yeah, Didn't come from Africa, didn't come from South America, didn't come from Asia, didn't come from, you know, Russia, (laughs) you know, didn't come from, you know, where where did freedom come from? Came from Britain, came from writers, philosophers, uh, activists, entrepreneurs, you know, going back to Magna Carta, maybe before that in England, that's where freedom came from, defining a republic. Limited power of the monarch, a constitution, a parliament. That's where freedom came from. So when when these folks talk about white supremacy, what they're really talking about is the supremacy that freedom is the public good. Freedom is the supreme value. That's what they're saying. White White supremacy is the supremacy of the idea that freedom and liberty, life, liberty, and property are paramount. And the only real responsibility of government—that idea of life, liberty, and property—is what they consider white supremacy. Well, in fact, that idea is is supreme because it's the one, it's the only idea that works. Everything else, you know, theocracies, uh, democracies, socialism, fascism, Nazism, communism—none of those work. So, in, in fact, freedom is the supreme idea for. Uh, Everything, even you know, in terms of a country. All right, let me get back to the article here. Um, definitely rambling on, more than I thought. Here we go. So then she says, uh, uh, oh, here we go. It says, of course, she and the majority. All right, here we go. Let me just start again. Irish society, the hatred already existed. Then, she says, then he says, of course, she, this is Jonathan Charlie talking, of course, she and the majority will determine what views create deep discomfort. So in other words, this is a vote. They're going to take a vote on your freedom. They're going to take a vote on what's acceptable and what's not in the public good. So who's going to de- determine the public good? Those with the power. So again, it comes back to them determining their good. Then, she, then he says, Jonathan says, the Irish legislation is likely to be replicated around the world if the free... Okay, I already said that. He says, we've been discussing uh, efforts like figures like Hillary Clinton to enlist European countries to force Twitter to restore censorship rules. Well so of course Hillary Clinton, you know, being a, being a tyrant wants censorship. Unable to rely on corporate censorship or convince users to embrace censorship, Clinton and others are resorting to good old-fashioned state censorship, even asking other countries to censor the speech of American citizens. Oh, I'm censored all over the world. I'm not just here. I'll break through it. It's It's only a matter of time. So he says, Ireland now stands on the precipice of freedom. The embrace of such laws by the Irish is crushingly ironic. Frank Ryan, who fought against the treaty Spoke for many radicals in declaring, as long as we have fists and boots, there will be no free speech for traitors. (laughs) Those anti-treaty forces rejected the views of free speech that long defined Western nations. Now Ireland is declaring no free speech for haters. Well, a hater is anybody who disagrees with you, right? There must be haters. Or they're a phobe. Pick a phobe. Megaphobe? And and assumes the authority to define who are the haters and who are not. Yep. If you can say who the haters are, you can control everything. Uh, I don't want to do any more of these here. I might stop early today. I ran long yesterday. (laughs) I'm going to look up some of the things from this article, too. That might be kind of fun. Check messages. Anybody talking to me? No one's talking to me. Okay, fine. Yeah. So, like I say, Marco's not here. Um, No one's on the phone. It's just me, and I think I've had enough. So I stopped a little early today. Yesterday we ran long. Today I'm going to run a little bit short. And that's okay, because that story was brilliant. And I I really can't stop that one right now. So I'll be back tomorrow, tomorrow, Friday show. Not sure who's going to show up yet. Uh, I never really know for sure. Um, I'll check on Candace, see if she's available for her report. Uh, I think Derek's off tomorrow for the financial report. Oh, he is still there. Marco's still there. Okay, good. Um, And that's Marco, do you want to hear another article? I'll give him the option. See what he says. I'm type in a bit. I mean I, I may not do it anyway. Let me see if I can find something really good. Just in case he wants to hear another one. That one's pretty good though. Pretty kind of fun. Another not quite reported article. Yeah, let I me mean, stick around for another one here. This one's kind of fun. This is about Robert Spencer who does Jihad Watch. Another not quite reported story. This is I try to find the stories that aren't being reported that much. To me those oh this is your choice. Okay. To me those are the most interesting. So let me just do this one more. And uh, I'll still stop a bit early. Robert Spencer, June 19th, said leftists feeling betrayed after Muslim-governed Michigan City bans the pride flag. Now, this, you mean the gay pride flag. Okay? You can't just say the pride flag because that could be anybody who has pride. And the rainbow flag is not the pride flag of everybody who has pride. The rainbow flag is the flag of those who are LGB, et cetera, et cetera, PMS. So you, you have to call it the gay pride flag. Uh, or you have to call it gay pride, because if you just say pride, that doesn't mean anything. Again, my example is Black History Month. If you don't say Black History Month then, and just say History Month, well, that doesn't mean anything. Every month is History Month. You know, we were always talking about history. right? So if you don't say Black History Month, there's nothing special about it. just History Month. Same thing with pride. If you just say Pride Month, oh, we know what we're supposed to assume, right? But if you think about it, and you just say Pride Month, well, that could be pride for anybody. It's meaningless, but that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about Gay Pride Month. That's what it is. So say so. And if you're proud of it, why would that be a problem? Why would you take gay out of Gay Pride Month if you're if – you're, if you're, uh, does that mean you're not proud of it? So it's, it's, it's Gay Non-Pride Month? It says Pride Month, but it's Gay Non-Pride Month. Got it. Back to the article. But the irony is that the, that the leftists uh, – see, the, the conservatives are so guilt-ridden, especially the white conservatives – so they can't say anything against Pride Month like I just did, or excuse me, Gay Pride Month. They can't say that. I can. They can't. So who's coming out to do what the conservatives want to do, which is limit this this protest here and not have the corporations? and I mean, the protest – well, I shouldn't say limit the protest. I misspoke. Um, it's fine for, obviously, people who want LGBTQ, whatever, who want to march and you know do things and protest and have celebrations and festivals. Great. I don't care. But what I don't want is companies taking over and basing their products and hiring practices and, and everything else um, and uh, hiring like a, an LGB person over a straight dude, you know, if the if straight dude can do the job better. That's where the problem comes in. And it comes in government policy with things like we just talked about. Hate speech laws. where you can't say anything against these people. They're a protected group. Okay. Well, then you can't say anything about white Christian males. We're now a protected group. If you do, I'm offended. Oh, no, you're you're the majority. Oh, really? Have you done, Have you checked the numbers lately? <laughs> no, I'm not the majority. White Christian men are a minority in this country. Therefore, I want minority protection and affirmative action. All right. But it's ironic that the Muslims are saying what the Christians can't say. That's why this is so funny. Article says leftists in Hamtramck, H-A-M-T-R-A-M-C-K, Hamtramck, Michigan, are feeling a bit like parents with ungrateful children these days. After all they've done for the Muslim community that now has made Hamtramq, the first city in the United States with a completely Muslim city council. Isn't that fascinating? So we've got diversity to the point where it's all Muslim. (laughs) That's not diversity. Um, That's That's, that's unity. (laughs) And it says, uh, completely Muslim city council, their former allies and protégés have turned against them and rejected the increasingly aggressive and intrusive pride madness, which we call gay pride. So you know which kind of pride it is. Article says, as Rick Moran reported Thursday, the All-Muslim City Council held a vote on Wednesday evening about flying the gay pride flag on government property. Mind you, the gay pride flag can still be flown by businesses and private residences. Okay, that's fine. Mayor Amir Ghalib, Muslim, said, we serve everybody equally with no discrimination but without favoritism. Oh, that's interesting. No discrimination, no favoritism. Mm -hmm. He says, there's nothing unreasonable about that at all. But the UK's Guardian on Saturday painted the whole affair in a markedly different light, stressing the palpable ingratitude of hem Muslims to the leftists who did so much to help them get to where they are today. So the leftists created a Muslim enclave probably for voting, probably to make themselves feel better, probably to, to show they're not Islamophobes. You know, so they, they do what they do best, do-gooding to the point of absurdity and danger. And so they've created a Muslim, Muslim city council, and now that Muslim city council is doing what Muslims do which is hate gay people. <laughs> you know, you want to talk about hate? You know, I mean, throwing a gay person off a roof in a Muslim country, that's a, that's a pretty pure example of hate, right? Anyway, it says, The Guardian began by reminding us all how much the local Muslims owed the leftists who allied with them. Oh, see, that's it. See, the leftists will only do things for you if you then, you know, pay them back, right? He says, In 2015, many liberal residents in Tremp. Michigan celebrated as the city attracted international attention for becoming the first in the United States to elect a Muslim-majority city council. Well, now it's all Muslim. This was a truly great thing that grew even greater in retrospect, for it amounted to a repudiation of the man who, before too long, was to become the source and summit of all evil in the modern world, one Donald J. Trump. They viewed the power shift and diversity, the Guardian explained, as a symbolic but meaningful rebuke of the Islamophobic rhetoric that was the central theme of the then-Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump's campaign. Yeah, it's a bunch of nonsense. The only thing he did was say that uh, Muslim countries that export terrorists, we're not going to take your terrorists. Okay? Pretty simple. They he says, so the leftists and the Muslims were both on the side of the angels, happily uniting to strike back against racism, xenophobia, bigotry, and Islamophobia. How could such a perfect partnership possibly go bad? Yeah, leftists and Muslims. Leftists and Muslims try to, to uh, you know, work together because one's a, a Marxist tyranny and the other is an Islamic tyranny. So what the leftists and Muslims have in common is tyranny. Now, Trump did have a travel ban from certain countries. I understand that. I actually didn't agree with that. I still think you need to vet people. You know, to have a travel ban is just—it's just a blanket policy. It's kind of stupid, and it attracted a lot of criticism too. However. If you have a decent vetting policy, you don't need a travel ban. You just need to ban certain people. Anyway, he says, that's just the question leftists are asking now. If the Guardian's report is to be believed, this week, many of those same residents watched in dismay as a now fully Muslim and socially conservative city council, fully Muslim and socially conservative. That's funny. passed legislation banning gay pride flags from being flown on city property that had, like many others, been flown around the country, being intended to celebrate the LGBTQ plus PMS community. Being wholly on, the, of course, I'm adding things here, right? Being wholly on the side of the left in this unexpected and unprecedented breach, the Guardian went out of its way to portray the Muslims who were standing against the quote gay pride madness in the ugliest possible manner. Muslim residents packing City Hall erupted in cheers after the council's unanimous vote, and on hamtram social media pages, the taunting has been relentless. "Fagless city," read one post, emphasized with emojis of a bicep flexing. As if that weren't enough, in a tense monologue before the vote, Council Member Mohammed Hassan shouted his justification at the LGBTQ plus PMS supporters. I'm working for the people, what the majority of the people like. Hmm. It's actually kind of true. I mean, the LGBTQ is a pretty small minority. And especially if you split LGB, LGB lesbians, gays, and bisexuals from, I don't know what the other folks are. <laughs> it just kind of changes. And it says, for all their crocodile tears over our led threats to, quote, our democracy leftists don't want the majority to have what it likes leftists want to give the majority and the minority what leftists know is good for both in other words the public good we're just talking about that in the previous article we know what's in the public good we can take away your freedom for the public good except the problem is the public good is freedom as we just pointed out back to the article Pianki's on the line oh good i got a caller i get to talk a little bit maybe i will stay the full 20 uh, i've only got 20 minutes left I keep, this is what happens. Whenever I threaten to end a show early, people show up. <laughs> it's kind of funny. All right. It says, for all the, it says leftists want to give the majority and the minority what leftists know is good for both. Yeah, what's good for the majority? Shut up. What's good for the minority? Promote you against the majority. This says, the job of the great unwashed masses is to submit meekly and accept what our moral and intellectual superiors prescribe for us. No, that was what happened in the last article, uh, and that is from eating bugs and giving up fossil fuels, in other words, organic fuels, to turning our weapons and avoiding what the elites claim is hate speech. See the theme here? We're actually on a theme. You get the idea. So the leftists promote the left is Muslims and the Muslims turned around and got rid of the gay pride flags. That, to me, is friggin' hysterical. Pianki, what do you think? Good morning.
2: Well, they got rid of the gay pride flag and the banners for trans, uh-huh. uh, transsexuals. Now I didn't know how people felt when they were getting rid of American soldiers' statues
0: uh-huh.
2: and battle flags.
0: But they felt justified in doing that. They feel betrayed when the same thing happens to them. You know, what was it? Payback yeah. the bitch? Or what's good for the goose is good for the gander? Or the pot calling the kettle black? And all these different expressions which all mean the same thing? You don't mind doing it to other people, but you don't want it done to you. So in other words, the public good, as they define it, is their protected groups get to do whatever they want. And the other group, you know, the rest of us, you know, we have to listen to them because they're going to tell us what's in our public good. And they're wrong. But I just think it's funny. So whatever happened to Gay Pride? Why don't, how come all these people are so scared of saying Gay Pride flag? If you say or, or, or Gay Pride Month, if you don't say Gay Pride Month, then nobody knows what it is. It'd be like Black History Month. What if there's a movement to take Black History Month and just call it History Month? It'd have no meaning.
2: Right? Well, what they call Black History is American history.
0: You cut up for a second. You say Black History is American history? Yeah, it is.
2: It's a part of American history, Yes.
0: Mm -hmm. So why don't we have, um, well, it would be interesting, you notice it's not Black American History Month. Why don't we just call it American History Month and include Black, you know, Americans in it because Black Americans are part of history, just as white Americans, you know, uh, Asian Americans, Native Americans, you know. I mean, we're all part of our history. History is made up of the the sum total of all the actions within a certain time, no matter who does it. And kids
2: and, you know, your students in your school, they – Rejected because this uh, regurgitated same information over and over. You only have so much information,
0: right? Well, did you ever think of this, though? I just thought it was just now as you said that, that by standardizing teaching, you limit the available information for the whole nation. This is more like private schools. If private schools can talk about you know and teach what they want, and they don't have to follow a particular government standard, then everybody receives a, a little different education. Well, that's actually good. That's actually educational diversity, what the left seems to pride themselves on. So if you really have educational diversity and people don't learn all the same things, you've got a much greater pool of knowledge to draw from. Because somebody who had a different education might have a different solution that's better for a problem because they had a different education. Or a different way of looking at it. Right. And
2: if you got if you got educational diversity, aren't you moving away from segregation?
0: Sure. Because you're segregating people to standard information. If you, if you, and since the government schools set the standards, you're basically standardizing everybody to only know government information in the school system. That's why I don't like government schools. They should all be closed down. But parents have to take responsibility too and teach the kids other stuff. There you go. That's yeah, very well, look, cruel. Well, look at parents Brianna. Who's on, yeah, look at Brianna who's on Tuesdays. She's 16, right? She's brilliant. I can talk to her about anything I can talk to any adult about. She already has the knowledge. And it's not afraid to express mm-hmm. an opinion. Now, she's probably one in a million in this country in, in terms of kids.
2: Well, yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot out there. They just don't get the recognition. And rightfully the so, they're not looking for recognition. They're looking for mm-hmm. quality and excellence mm-hmm. in performance with what she's doing.
0: Yeah. But she's such a great example for all those kids that can, can do the same thing. They can think for themselves. But this is why homeschooling is so good. And this is why uh, teacher diversity. In other words, yeah, go to, you know, it's like in, in San Francisco, the, the Chinese have a Chinese immersion school. I think it's a great idea. Chinese kids, Chinese American kids go to Chinese school to learn Chinese, to learn Chinese history, to learn Chinese culture. You know, and then the, after school, they're Americans. A few they do like typical American stuff. So it's, but but they have that background, you know. I wouldn't mind anybody that would do something like that. Mm And they
2: had the same thing in charter schools in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. Mm -hmm. You had French immersion, Spanish immersion, Greek immersion. Students went around all day in the classrooms in the schools speaking the language of the
0: immersion, the theme of the school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially parents that come from other countries that want to teach their kids. The, the, the native language, but also wanted to speak English really well. And I know a lot of people, at least in the earlier days, they came here to learn English and speak English, and they still spoke their, their language at home, so the kids might have learned it at home, but they wanted them to speak English. And now I think that the trend is so much, that of course, those kids only speak English, so they can't teach the kids the native language, the Italian, the French, the German, the, the Dutch, the, the I only Dutch's is language. Is Dutch a language, or do you guys speak German, or is it a different dialect? Let's mark all that. Point of confusion. I think Dutch is different. Dutch I think is it's different, been, yes. You know, I think, but I think in German I think in Austria, it's it's, it's like German, Austrian is. You know, I think that I don't think the language changes between Austria and Germany. But I think Dutch is different. Guten Tag as opposed to Guten Tag. I mean, it's it's close, but it's not the same. Marco will tell us. Anyway, um. Yeah, but if, if you know, my father went to Greek school in Australia. I mean, they spoke Greek at home, but he went to Greek school to learn Greek culture. And they also went to Australian school. They actually went and ended up going to two schools for a while. That, that makes sense to me. You know, and your and classrooms
2: police. are diverse, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. students sitting in the classroom nowadays that are from many different countries. So you can't take out a whole month of study in a classroom for one in particular group. and Nothing else will
0: get done. Yeah, exactly. Well, we had in Australia, I had uh we had Indonesians, New Zealanders, uh we had uh, Asian folks, we had folks from India, uh Europe, primarily England. Um, we had a couple of Canadians, me I was one, we had a couple Americans. We had uh what else do we have? I'm trying. To, that's pretty much it. No, it was a big portion of the world. You know, so we had a lot of folks from different countries. Oh, classroom. Uh-huh. That was our diversity.
2: Yeah, the fundamentals of a particular ethnic group should be taught in their own traditional school. Then a student, once they're grounded, they can go any place in the world and do further studies. Like mm-hmm. these Russian geological schools are like excellent schools, some of the best in the world. Yeah. And there you go to learn on particular things, geology, mm-hmm. the mining, the earth sciences. So you don't... You know, you go to a school to learn a particular thing, just like you go to a culinary arts school to learn a particular thing, and mm-hmm. you've been well-grounded in the basics before you got there.
0: Yeah. You know, I always thought it would be neat to learn another language, but I never had a use for one. My use is so limited. You know, I was in California. It would have been nice to learn Spanish. Uh, Canada, it would be nice to learn French. I actually learned probably more French than any other language. Uh, Spanish would be second, but I, I don't remember much of it. Um, even took a little Russian, but that was of no use. In Australia, they made me learn some German, which was uh, of no use either to me because, you know, most uh, – when I went to Germany, they all spoke English. So that wasn't a big deal. But if I was living in another country or, or doing business with another country, I'd learn the language. You stupid not to. Well,
2: yeah, you know, like the, like the Cuban uh, medical schools, Elon, they're free, which you have to be able to speak Spanish, and they require – uh, you have taken some courses before you got there. Six years. Yeah, I take you an immersion. Seven, six. Huh?
0: Well, I exempted out of language for college and I exempted out of uh, basic math, you know, because I, I did not well enough in high school to exempt out of a lot of stuff. So I, I get to take the good courses right away. But the other problem is kids going to college have to take so many remedial stuff just to get them, uh, get them going. Oh, so Marco's leaving us. Yeah, you have a great day too, Marco. Uh, apparently we've got thunderstorms in the Netherlands. We got thunderstorms here in Florida. It's been storming for a while now. Two weeks of consistent thunderstorms in the afternoon. So, yeah. That's our Netherlands connection. He never answered our question, though, but that's okay. He's probably packing up to get out.
2: But the article you read that has some great points in it. Which one? And you know we, 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 we made mention about it, human rights. Human rights uh-huh. popped up with the as human rights declaration that supposedly all nations supposed to tie into. Uh, but when you get to reading that, mm-hmm. you would know what's going on. You know, to say that children have rights over their parents. And that's what yeah. you're seeing going on in some of these uh, movements today, where mm-hmm. they're trying to explicitly
0: uh,
2: level children above their parents. And that's totally, totally backwards.
0: You have the, uh, the the Muslims in Michigan telling the leftists can't have the gay pride flags. <laughs> I think that's hysterical.
2: That's great. That's their community standard. That's,
0: that's,
2: that's the way it should be.
0: Yeah. Did you hear earlier in the show, I was talking about Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, he gets his education from a, a Soros fund, uh, Paul Soros, George Soros' brother. And all of a sudden, he's rising to power from nowhere. And uh, he does amazingly well like Hillary did with her investments and we have no experience in, in hedge funds. He's making hundreds of millions of dollars. And uh, then he starts to get out and run companies and the companies all lose money and he doesn't get fired. You know, this guy sounds like a, like the next uh, Obama um, and Hillary Clinton, you know, being groomed for the, for the, for a leadership position. Yet they're, they're putting him in the Republican party. When he's, he so obviously sounds like a Democrat talking about pardoning Trump for his crimes. Well, if he's a Republican, he said there were no crimes. Exactly. Yeah, and you're trying,
2: trying to make totally. it. Go ahead. You're trying to make it soothe over the popular news story that there was. You're right. There was no crime. It, and making it sound like he did commit a crime.
0: Yeah, it's, it's propaganda. So, in other words, in trying to say that he's in favor of Trump and supporting Trump, he's really not. What he's really doing is introducing the idea every time he says that uh, the, the candidates should make a promise to pardon Trump. What they're saying is Trump's not going to win. He's not good enough to win. He's saying that uh, that Trump is guilty uh, because you don't pardon innocent people. I was talking to Brian about this the, the other day. So you don't pardon innocent people. Innocent people are exonerated, found not guilty. The charges are dropped. They get a new trial. They win on appeal. They do all kinds of things, but they're not pardoned. The only people who are pardoned are guilty. So So the message is, Trump is guilty, but for the good of the country, you know, we're not going to prosecute him. Of course, he could change that in a minute. But why would you say that? Why would you say? But they're trying to make Trump into Nixon. Nixon was pardoned by Gerald Ford, so the country didn't go into, uh, you know, all kinds of crazy things. I think it was a mistake. I don't believe in pardons, you know, for political expediency.
2: Good point. I, yeah, I agree with you.
0: Yeah. Now, I do believe in pardons for people that were unjustly convicted with no other way out. So if... Well, what Trump needs to do, he doesn't... And here's the thing, too. Trump, when he gets in, does not need to pardon the J6 people because that's an admission of guilt. What he should do is have all their charges dropped and erased from their record and their good names restored. And they should get restitution. That's what they should get. And the ability to sue... They should get
2: restitution.
0: Yeah, and the ability to sue their captors who unjustly imprisoned them as a political prisoner and all the guards who are treating these people horribly, they should be personally liable for that treatment. That's what I would do.
2: And even if Trump went away and this totally evaporated, that premise still should be carried out,
0: no mm-hmm. matter who yeah. it is. Yeah, you don't pardon them. You get the Justice Department to, to reverse, to drop the charges. You go back to court, and all those judges that were Trump-hating that, that made these erroneous and horrible judgments. You arrest them for judicial misconduct. You kick them out of the judgeships. You, you impeach them. You remove the prosecutors for prosecutorial misconduct for withholding evidence and sabotaging trials and everything else. You go through the whole system and you clean it out. And you give those people restitution and the ability to sue their political prisoner captors. That's how you handle that. But you don't pardon them. because They didn't do anything wrong.
2: You didn't do anything wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But where do you think some of these ideas come that we see being pushed along by Democrats? Oh, you've they're... got, uh, you've got uh, oh, yeah. laws that's been, you've got bills that have been passed by uh, legislature. You've got uh, public, uh, the public has came out and voted, but when you have a, democratic governor they want mm-hmm. to the veto.
0: Mm-hmm. democrats are a strange breed you know if if i if i wanted to go with the public good like that article talked about uh, from tenscurly you know when they said that restricting freedom is in the public good uh, what what is in the public good is actually to decertify the democrat party that would be in the public good we'd have much more freedom we'd have a lower budget Uh, We'd be able to Trump would be president like he's supposed to be and a whole bunch of really good things would happen. But I won't do it because it's wrong, even though it is in the public good, public interest to decertify the Democrat Party. You still have to do it the right way, which is outvote them, convince people that they're that they're a horrible party, that they're wrong and they're bringing about tyranny. Now, those that actually are bringing about tyranny and election fraud, those get arrested and thrown in jail. So this whole idea of public good, nobody can no individual can express the public good. Because I said before, the public good is the sum total of all the individual decisions made freely without government coercion or intimidation. That's the public good. The public determines the public good through the, the sum total of individual decisions. Not what some party recommends or what some politician or officeholder recommends, because they're not the public. And then when it says down here, the public good, restricting freedom is in the public good. I said, no, freedom, freedom is the public good, not restricting it. Anyway, I'm gonna go over more of this article. They have a bunch of sites and different places to go. So a bunch of a bunch ooh, no, I'm not gonna do that. That's an ad close the ad. It's got all these things I can click on to see where it goes. It's probably gonna mess up my transition. Oh, Jonathan Charlie, more articles. Yeah, anyway, I'm gonna do like a Jonathan Charlie X. <laughs> probably either tomorrow or Monday. I'll take a look and see. Maybe Monday, I'm gonna have a chance to read his articles. He's fascinating. I wanna get him on the show too. That'd be fun. Anyway, um, I'm about done. Any uh, Anything happening this week that um, really made your blood boil?
2: Well, it's always something you can comment about. It just <laughs> depends know. on the degree that it's obvious.
0: Yeah. Well, we got some I mean, good news. We got, an ice, we got a new ice cream shop opening up. That's going to be fun. That'll be Saturday. we Are talking about that tomorrow, maybe? Scoop's ice cream is back here in Milton, so that's good.
2: Yeah, well, so that was good news. about $3.
0: I don't know. I've been there for a while. Well, they used to. I had them on when we, I was at WBY when they did their first opening. So Scoops is back. Milton is growing. So all you folks that want to come to Milton, Florida, uh, we are a growing community. We're getting more businesses. We're getting more fun. And we need some businesses to come here. We need a barbecue place. We need an Italian restaurant. We need a Thai restaurant. We need something on the waterfront. We need some some boat services. We need to turn our courthouse into the courthouse market. So the potential is right here. So all you folks, come on down to Milton. <laughs> come visit. Uh, we're a uh, diamond in the rough. We're just waiting to uh, to be the, the, the tourist like historical that. mecca. What's that?
2: Scoop of ice cream and slices of cheesecake is tremendously high. I remember when a quart of hand-packed vanilla ice cream from Velvet Trees was $0.50. Cent.
0: Ooh, you are old. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, what else is in the news? There's got to be some fun news. Anyway, we're the home of the Blue Angels down here, too. That's kind of fun. Maybe I'll play my Milton Promotion ad on the way out. I haven't done that for a while. That's always fun. Um, tomorrow, i will probably talk about uh, we we'll cover the China spy base. So we have our second uh, Cuban uh, crisis. The first one was the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 60s that uh, Kennedy handled. And the next crisis is now. <laughs> you know, with China having bases in Cuba, which Brandon won't do anything about because China owns him. It's funny how that has not really come up in the the uh, presidential debate topics. I don't see any presidential candidates talking about how strong they're going to be on China. Have you noticed that? I just I just thought about that. N- not, the only Republican candidate who's talking about China is Trump, right? Brandon talks well, about them in loving been, terms.
2: Yeah, the others are probably being funded. You know, I was doing some study on the advances that we have made in space
0: uh-huh. with the
2: deployment of the Hubble. Telescopes and even those more advanced than them. Uh And the United States are is like a light year ahead of China in that aspect. And people say the United, that's just not true. They are. It's just not uh, enough young people getting involved more than you would anticipate, though. But the United Mm -hmm. States is doing remarkable things when it comes to the technology, especially with space exploration. And at some point in time we're gonna to have to look for other places to live if we consider on um, maintaining carrying humanity forward.
0: Well, we have a cultural lead uh in the US. And I'm writing a note to myself down uh here, um, because of our individuality. So you the lead absolutely reason that... right. Yeah. Yeah, the, I mean individuality always works. Yeah, I, I, mm-hmm. well, let me see if I can get some sources on this because I remember reading somewhere that uh, the reason that Japan, for example, doesn't have a whole lot of Nobel prizes um, for innovation, you know, chemistry, physics, things like that, because they don't, because the, it's a very conformist society, or engineering, I think it is, uh, or, or you know, or economics or stuff. They're very conformist, so they're very much you know doing what's been done before. They're very much you know follow the company. You know, the company's innovators in Japan. It's harder to innovate in Japan because it's not cultural, because you're going against the, 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 the masses, the public good, if it were. And it's not just yeah. Japan. I just happened to but read that on Japan. Well, no, I got a few minutes. Hey, I was, oh, I was yeah. 45 minutes over yesterday. I don't know if you heard my show yesterday, but we ran really long. They just kept talking. There's two women around. They kept talking. Like, okay. <laughs> I do it now. Anyway, innovation works, individuality works, freedom works. Freedom wow. is the only public good. I'm going to leave you there. Talk to mm-hmm. you tomorrow, Pianki. Talk to you tomorrow. All right. Isn't this fun? <laughs> so I actually did my whole show today, so it worked out fine. All right. So the website you're listening to is blogtalkradio.com slash citizen action. Our legislative site is writeyourlaws.com. dot Writeyourlaws.com. My articles are gregpangloss.substack.com. Um, we have uh, contributions. go dot com slash Action Radio. You can also get paid subscriptions to my my articles uh, and my public email, Greg at dot com. I'm gonna play a little Milton promotion and then our classical musical theme for today. And we'll see you tomorrow when we do it all again, 7 a.m. Central Time. Um, catch you then. This is Greg Pangloss, creator of Action Radio for my town. Milton, Florida. Milton, it's where I live. It's where you can live, too. It's where you can bring a new business, especially a business that helps our downtown historic district. We have everything in Milton. We have the Blackwater River. We have the Imogene Theater, built in 1912, and still booking national acts. We have Scoop's Ice Cream. We have Boomerang's Restaurant, where I get my favorite Thai chicken pizza. We have an outdoor stage for music acts and free concerts by the river. The Blackwater Bistro will keep you in steak and seafood indefinitely. We have brew pubs creating great craft beers and giving us all a place to relax and talk. But it's more than just stuff and food and buildings. It's people. Remember the show Cheers where everybody knows your name? It's that kind of place. So if you are tired of the cities, of the traffic, the frenetic pace of life that doesn't seem to get you anywhere, If you want a small city that has incredible potential that combines the best of historic buildings and modern, fun, small retail shops and restaurants and a great waterfront, plus who knows what for the future, take a look at historic Milton, Florida in the Panhandle near Pensacola and the world's greatest beaches on the Emerald Coast of the Gulf of Mexico. Milton is going through a renaissance. Maybe you can be part of making it happen.